The Solid 7 Podcast is fueled by Jocko Go. Engineered for anyone who wants to get after it in life, pre-meeting, pre-testing, pre-negotiation, or pre-mission. If you're looking for an extra cognitive or physical edge, Jocko Go is your force multiplier. With 95 milligrams of caffeine and zero sugar, the keto-friendly Jocko Go will give you a physical and cognitive boost without the crash that you experience with average energy drinks. Visit JockoFuel.com today, and you can use our promo code SOLID7, that's S-O-L-I-D-7, to get 10% off your order. Get on the path and get after it. Oh, and because lawyers exist, these statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration, and this product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, hello and welcome, world, to a Solid 7 podcast, a better-than-average podcast, if I do say so myself. I'm, of course, your moderately humble host, Kale, and uh, this week I am happy to have here on the podcast with me, Mr. Andrew Cho. Welcome to the podcast, sir. Hey, it is a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you. Uh, Andrew, we don't know a whole lot about each other. Uh, We got connected through uh, our mutual friend, Dan, who's been on the podcast here recently. And um, I was thinking about, like, what's the best way to introduce you? Because I'm going to have you share your current title because, boy, is it a mouthful. Uh, But what it boils down to is it seems like you really like to enjoy trying to figure out how to keep humans alive in conditions that should kill them. Yeah, yeah, that 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 pretty much sums it up. Uh, thanks for having me on. <laughs> no, it, yeah, it, it's kind of ironic how that that's that's happened. And and uh, funny enough, in the last month, I'm adding to the human population too. So I'm just adding more humans and trying to keep them alive in, in weird weird spots. Um, but yeah, currently I'm I'm going out of the out of the our, our humble abode here on earth and and looking at how humans might survive long term in space and particularly how the heck we're going to get to mars and do it successfully and come back and live to to buy the books and and see the movies and and rinse and repeat so it's it's a it's a humble it's a humble job that's a lot of fun tackling a a crazy challenging problem um so it's well, and all, right now, and all about way to, to describe my <laughs> yeah. my title, which yeah. the title is a bit funky as well, but uh, yeah, it's yeah. Right now, you find yourself doing that for a little organization. Um, some of the listeners may have heard of it, may not have heard of it, uh, but you're you're doing that for NASA uh, at, at the yeah. moment. Yep. So it's a small startup. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so I'm I'm here at the Marshall Space Flight Center. And uh, actually, I'm a support contractor for NASA, so to cover my my butt here a little bit and and to protect my my own company, um, I work for the Jacob Space Exploration Group as a support contractor for NASA. But um, functionally, yeah, we're we're embedded and supporting the NASA team and and working that NASA mission and and going through all the hoops and ladders uh, here in Huntsville. So it's it's a lot of fun, uh, kind of a dream job that. That I didn't know I wanted, but I'm sure glad I'm here and doing it. And yeah, looking forward to diving diving in and talking about it. 
Now, I, I know you've been able to uh, to check out some of the episodes of the podcast, so y- you already kind of understand there's going to be some rabbit trails. I'm already fighting one hard just with the mere mention of Marshall. Uh, but also, you know, having listened to uh, uh, some podcasts, you know we've got a little podcast business to get out of the way before we dive in, mm-hmm. uh, which is, uh, you know, to down some good old American fuel. And so uh, it's time to to crack some Jocko Goes. There we go. I'm going uh, watermelon as I often do these days here. This is the sour apple sniple. So that one of my favorites by far. So cheers, sir. Cheers, yeah. Now is this first sip or did you uh, partake pre-podcast? This this is second sip because uh, I did I I did want to try it beforehand as not to have a, a horrible reaction, which I didn't think would happen. But I think that'd be really bad bad press. So. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's uh, we're intellectually honest here at the Solid Seven Podcast. It, it is what it is. So mm-hmm. before, before there are more recent formulations, uh, the, the monk fruit flavoring came through pretty pretty strong, and there mm-hmm. were some interesting on podcast uh, react. <laughs> but but these new ones are spot on. So unless a flavor just isn't somebody's bag, uh, pretty much everybody tends to be a fan these days. Yeah, very good. So I'll be up. I'll be up with uh, my new baby all night. We'll, we'll be good buddies tonight. <laughs> well, the, the nice thing is they they are a nice pick me up, but they're not like crazy on the caffeine, which is one of the things I appreciate about them over the others. Where it's like it's like a cup of coffee, maybe not mm-hmm. the best thing nine o'clock at night, but not like it's not like the worst thing. No, so, hey, but. it's all good. <laughs> so uh, backing things up some here, you are an engineer by trade. Is how you find yourself working at NASA via Jacobs now. So what, uh, uh, what's, what's the background story there? What was the draw to engineering for you? Ah, geez. I don't remember what the draw was. <laughs> I remember doing a, a job shadowing in high school to be an architect. And for those architects listening, I, I really couldn't stand it. Uh, <laughs> as it was a good shadow in that sense. So I, I went a bit more, um, behind the scenes to figure out how and why, uh, things work. And that, that for me was interesting. Uh, I'm also a big fan of rabbit holes. So being an engineer really lends itself well to that. Once you're out of school, uh, you can really go down some rabbit holes in terms of why does this thing exist? Uh, it shouldn't, but it does. And it's lasted the test of time. Um, and, and so, yeah, so I, I've, I've kind of dabbled in a lot of different jobs to be quite honest. Um, usually around cylindrical objects, carrying people, so that's like the one, the one theme that's uh, stayed the same in my career. Uh, so uh, yeah, so Dan Zaner and I, we were working on submarines for for quite some time, and and uh, love hearing him on the on the show uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, what he's up to these days, but yeah, we did submarines, and then I switched over to do some some spacecraft. So I did some Orion work for a little while. Uh, which was a huge, huge amount of excitement. Uh, we got to see the EFT-1 launch, uh, which was on the Delta IV Heavy for the Orion uh, capsule. And uh, then my son was born, and the the pace of work doing crazy space stuff was a bit much at that point, so shifted gears again out of space to do some jet engine work for a German company and kind of being a engineer slash engineer herder between folks in Germany and folks here in the U.S., which was a, a great amount of fun and learned a lot about uh, engine design and, and uh, uh, compressors and turbines and that type of thing. Uh, 
and then we moved to Germany for a bit, did, did more of the engine stuff, um, came back, COVID happened, right? The world changed, everything started over, um, and we wanted to move south. So we were in, in Connecticut at the time, we wanted to move south, and so I started looking around and shoot that little space bug was in my ear a little bit, and I uh, didn't think I'd find myself looking in Alabama, because uh, a guy from Maine doesn't really end up searching, how do I move to Alabama very often? <laughs> Um, but here I am, you know, this job came up, uh, it seemed like a really cool opportunity to get involved in kind of the next step of space. Yeah. So, um, uh, and, and how that will work and, and taking a lot of things and what I find interesting as an engineer is maybe not super deep thermodynamics and, and that type of thing. Um, but really the implementation of a lot of these smart people's work and, and being the implementer putting all the pieces together, integrate it, um, make sure there's a business case and then make it happen. And so that, yeah. that, that's been done kind of on the smaller scale. This is a whole nother level. Um, but so that, that's what makes me tick is, yeah. is these challenges that shouldn't happen. Um, but shoot, we'll find a way. So uh, was this kind of always a bug in you? Like, I know I'm not an engineer, but as a kid, man, I loved to take things apart and put them back together. Some things that should not have been taken apart by a child. As a matter of fact, the first telescope I ever owned, I, I took that one apart, couldn't get that bad boy back together. That telescope never viewed <laughs> anything ever again. So is it just kind of something you discovered later through school that you kind of liked, or was it kind of something yeah. you had a natural bent to? No, uh, ironically, I never, I don't have that tinker story in my background. For me, it was the context. So I, I love, I love history. I love learning about why things exist and the story yeah. that got them there. Um, so for me, it was maybe more of that contextual tinkering rather than taking stuff apart. Um, maybe I'm a bit lazy in that sense too. It's probably a psychological evaluation to, to test that one. Um, but yeah, so it, it's it's been a growing a growing interest, especially um, with anything aviation related. I love watching planes. Um, so for me, that's always interesting. Drives my wife crazy, and my kids are starting to get annoyed by it as well. But I, we live near an airport, the airport here in Huntsville, so it's always like, okay, it's uh, nine fifteen. Yeah, that's the cargo, seven forty seven, going over to Luxembourg. <laughs> Can't you tell? It's it's the four GP seven. So, um, uh, dude, so speaking of seven forty sevens, you know, being that we're gonna have a, a somewhat space exploration uh, themed episode here. Uh, we we got to take a, a, just a brief moment of silence, evidently, yeah. for uh, Virgin Orbit. What a bummer news today. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so for the listeners, uh, now, uh, you know, it'll be a few days since this went down, since you heard it, but uh, Virgin Orbit, ever since they failed to hit orbit on their, their launch over in Europe, uh, I mean, I saw Eric Berger make the great point, like spending a billion dollars to get to where you can launch. I can't remember what their capacity was, like 72 kilograms. I mean, we're talking to, you know, uh, a small format launcher, which is such a competitive space right now anyways, was never really the best, you know, fiscal plan. So it's a lot of money with with no scalability built in. It wasn't like... Uh, you know, relativity in their Terran one recently, which one of was one of the most beautiful rocket launches it really in was. memory. Yeah. Like it's just a pathfinder. It's a little rocket designed to get them to a big rocket. And with Virgin Orbit, that wasn't it. So they spent all this money on doing really, really hard science and engineering. Um 
like they they picked a, a like rocket science is the metric for hard things for a reason and they decided to throw a giant airplane into the mix just to make <laughs> it that much more fun and it was a cool thing they were doing but uh just you know we're just bleeding money we're looking for some financial backing thought they had it with honestly kind of a sketchy dude anyways uh, and just fell through. And so today's the the news is that they laid off, you know, like 85% uh, of their, of their workforce. So, but, you know, I, I was thinking about this and the lead up to, to coming on the podcast with you is just what an exciting time it is to be working in this industry. You know, I think uh, you and I, I don't know what our, our age gap is here, but it, for the longest time now, uh, you know, we've all kind of looked at, you know, the sixties as the golden age the golden era the exciting mm-hmm. uh in space exploration and and granted man what i wouldn't give to see a saturn 5 launch even now like let's forget the display uh out at ksc here in central florida let's slap that bad boy back together and fuel it up just let's just go one more time um but it's just not the case anymore like this is the golden age of space exploration right now it's amazing and it's exciting but especially for you know the these small sat launchers man it's it's business and it's it's cutthroat business it's a tough space and they're not all gonna make it no it, but it's fascinating and really fun to watch i'll i'll say that there there's these little companies that are that are truly startups that that have a visionary leading them a small group of phd's that are working phd hours and and putting stuff together and it's 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 awesome to watch i mean even um so I, we'll probably get there later but I, I grew up in maine so i have a fondness to look at things from maine including the the guys at jocko go and origin um but there's a little company up there called blue shift and they're making uh shoot they're they're another small payload provider and they're doing some some engine testing now but i'm like it, if there's little companies in in rural Maine making rockets and and small payloads they're like all over the country they're all over the world it's just it, I, I think it is the golden age it's like that price point has come down to make it really attractive for folks to get into it and both on the launcher and and the on the payload side so I, it's awesome it, it's you can't keep up with it all I think that's the toughest part I, I I see with it which is a good problem to have there's there's so much so much going on yeah, I, I was trying to to answer some question for somebody the other day, and I, and I can't remember what it was. You know, playing my my minor role as uh, you know the people in my immediate circle. I'm there. I'm their Tim Dodd. I'm their everyday astronaut. I watch, <laughs> and then I'll translate through uh, to them. And they were asking something about one of these small sat launchers, and I couldn't even remember which one the question was about. Um, I, I think somebody was asking me about launching from the equator and why, and I'm like, yeah, but now I'm like. Now I think it's Alpha's launching like out of Alaska. I mean, there's just all kinds of craziness going on right now, and you just can't mm-hmm. keep them straight. I was out at uh, at Kennedy with my with my son a couple of weeks ago, and there's still you know one of these little rockets, and I want to say it says Vector on the side of it, hanging in the the mm-hmm. IMAC building. I'm like I don't think that's an act. I don't think that's under development. I don't think. I, I mean, it, it came and went so quick. You can't. You can't keep up. And even the, the companies that are doing it well, they're all working on the next bigger thing. Like Terran already knows that the Terran 1 isn't going to be good enough. And what they're doing uh, with additive manufacturing and 3D printing is 
amazing. Like they didn't mm-hmm. make orbit with their. So for, for the listeners, Taryn, uh, one is, um, kind of this pathfinder, like just figuring out is the thing, are the things we're doing, can they work? Will they work? Are they sustainable? Uh, because they're, they're 3d printing everything from, you know, uh, 85% of their rocket was 3d printed engine component components, uh, just, uh, and, and not like off they're having developed the tech to 3d print with the materials they're doing in the format that they're doing it. Um, uh, and they're running methylox engines, uh, which is just, we know now know is the prettiest thing you'll see fly into the sky in your whole life. I just can't wait to see starship launch now. I just can't. I might have to go to Brownsville. Um, but uh, so they they had their first launch of this thing, and they missed orbit, but just barely. That was such a bummer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for them to to make it through Max Q, and uh, I, I mean, it's just so cool to see. But they know this. We're not going to make it a business. We can't stay alive with this little rocket. This is to figure out how to do the next big rocket. Uh, rocket Lab, same thing, you know. Despite Peter Beck saying we're never going to build a bigger rocket, he literally ate his hat in a video because they're building a bigger rocket. Um, so it's it's all kind of that scalability. But that's that's all um, in the commercial side. And it's cool to see that where I was watching videos recently, and I think it was probably an Elon interview, back when there was still all this debate around you know the public-private partnerships in space and was it advantageous and did it make sense there's an interview out there elon's literally choking up because of what some of his here like his lifelong heroes in space exploration have said about this and of course you know hindsight's 20 and we look back now and it seems so obvious that yes let's let the private companies do what they do well so that organizations like nasa can do what they do well and do the exploration and do the big picture stuff um, and so it's just so exciting to see because they feed in both directions. Yeah, the, the commercial the commercial crew program is is like the, I think a huge a huge inflection point for how space operates. I mean that, I mean, I don't know. I I was I'm definitely skeptical at times, right? I think it's because of where where I sit of sometimes seeing too much innovation too quickly. But on the other side, you need that push from wherever it may come from. If, 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 and, and this happened a lot when I was on the, the private side as opposed to where I am now, right? Uh, we're, we're much more risk averse. And everyone loves to test. Testing is probably the most fun thing you can do as an engineer. It is the most risky thing you can tell your program manager <laughs> because it's so much money. Like we may fail. We may waste this $5 million asset or $20 ass doesn't matter. You don't yeah. want to hear failure when you talk program and money because that, that could be the end. And I, I think that's what I love most of what's going on right now is even though that the 3D printed rocket didn't make it to orbit, it was amazing and inspiring to watch and see that technology do what it was supposed to do. Yeah. Um, and shoot, man, they, it, it, I was laughing when the second stage was trying so hard to, to ignite and oh just gosh. please... And that the gimbling of the engine was just like uh, all I could think of was like you know when you if you shoot an animal it's like uh, just moving around a little bit a little bit I can yes. I can still make it he was trying that that was trying so hard to get there but I thought they were gonna get it shoot yeah so and, so it, it's 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 fun to watch it yeah. like I said I, it, this is really an amazing time different approaches to the same problem and you can't have 
a more like more variety, like how how these companies are all trying to tackle the problem to get to space, right? To get to Leo. Yeah. Well, and even there was another one. I, I was trying to to pull it up while we were talking, and and I didn't get to it. But yet another uh, Tim Dodd video. There was another company that they're doing some ver like this crazy version of an aerospike that he was just there. Is this the one in, Was uh, in Washington? Based. Yes. Crazy what they're doing. This like ring of little engines around the bottom of their stage, but with no bells, like basically working like an aerospike. And again, listeners, if at any point I sound smart, know that I'm just saying things I've heard from Tim Dodd. Andrew will sound very smart throughout this. I am parroting smarter people <laughs> than myself. So if at any point you're like, what does that mean? If 100% if I say something that's correct, it came from a Tim Tim Dodd video, which actually even with the, the Terran rocket, like how timely that Tim Dodd just put out like an hour long video about how to start rocket engines mm -hmm. and come to find out it's really hard. And, and the companies that do it over and over again make it look really easy. Mm -hmm. And it's not. And it's only because of the failures they had before. Like, Taryn won, I'd bet a crisp $100 bill. Taryn One's next launch is successful. Like, they successfully achieve orbit. They were so, that last little bit, I'd just be shocked if they don't have successful orbit on their next launch. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. And I'll also put a big disclaimer too. So I'm not a rocket guy. <laughs> I'm on the payload. I'm on the payload side. So funny enough, anything either of us say rocket rocket related is probably uh, blatant copyright infringement from Tim Don. <laughs> yeah, everything's either for me. It's either Tim, the guys at NSF, a display at Kennedy Space Center, or Scott Manley, who really is too smart for me. I really got to take my time with Scott Manley stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so that info's out there, though, listeners, and uh, you know our regular listeners will know. Massive fan of everyday uh, astronaut, and he like his tagline of bringing space down to Earth for everyday people. Boy, is he just the best on the planet at it right now. Couldn't be a bigger fan of his stuff. Open invite to the podcast always. I'm looking for that like five six degrees of separation to uh, eventually. <laughs> He's in Florida all the time. One of these launches, we're going to connect. It just has to happen. So, but you, yeah, just I mean, you, you say it's the golden age of space flight, but I think it's also the golden age of like space coverage too. Oh right? yeah, there, there's never been so many more public like um, spaces to to learn about it for one. Right, you don't have to go find a textbook in a in a dusty library or just pray that a public paper is released from Von Braun and his team. Right, it's like. There's so much coverage everywhere, probably to a too too much at sometimes. It, yeah. it turns into a bit of a opinion show, but there's there's so much information out there to learn the basics, to learn the advanced stuff, to like really nerd out on every single launch. And it it's I think that that part is is really awesome too. And yeah. it's also within in the in the agency too. People are have that same excitement or watching all of these things. So it's not like, it's not just the folks that aren't involved in the, in like the space world that are watching it. It's everybody. It's exciting. Yeah. I think it's a, a real testament to what we're all doing. Well, and the interconnectivity and, and I, I want to fill in the background uh, some, some uh, still as we get into what you're doing now and, and how you got there. Uh, but just the, you know, we kind of touched on the interconnectivity already, 
where it's like, you know, we watched and we talked about here on the podcast uh, a lot, um, you know, the first Artemis launch. And obviously, you know, that's integral to what you're working on now. Like you say you're on the payload side, well, you if it doesn't fly, you don't fly, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like a, a payload needs a transport. Uh, but, uh, you know, particularly with the lunar base stuff right now, you've, you're just as invested. You're just as reliant on Starship. Like Starship's got to be able to do its thing when it's supposed to do its thing for any astronauts not to get to go and play with any of the cool toys you're making for them. 100%. Um, yeah. And and even the, the science we're doing now, right? Um, you know, the the 80s kid American in me could not have been more embarrassed at Russia being our only ride to space for as long as they were. And so again, and, and, you know, my how the <laughs> wanting to quote Michael Scott right now, how the turntables <laughs> turn. But uh, like, I don't think I want to ride in a Soyuz capsule right now. Give me a dragon, please. And thank you. Um, which it will be a good segue later on into us talking about space liking to poke little holes in things with humans in them. And uh, and maybe how we prevent that, but but you kind of got your start in this like uh, let me uh, keep humans alive in uh, austere environments on the on the submarine side. So one like what what brand of engineer are you? First of so all, so by education I'm a mechanical engineer, and uh, then I got my master's in systems engineering, which is a super generic term um, that can be like uh, I get calls like for IT systems and all these things but really it's like big S big E systems engineering so requirements uh, all the interface management or kind of like the again it's it's kind of the I see it as the implementation how do we organize the chaos and go forward so okay I get yeah. so from an from an execution side or from like a, a UI side uh, from execution, so okay. take, taking all of the technologies that exist and integrating them, managing them, and making them work together, not just the first time, but after like the thousandth time as well. Oh, am I going to have so many questions about the challenges yeah. of doing that in a development it, it, climate like NASA's? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> so what, what was the draw then to, to submarines? Is it kind of just you were out of school and that's what was there? Pretty much, yeah. So I... I I, I know Dan shared his love of submarines a couple shows ago, like from the young age of, you know, little, little Dan Zaner. I, I didn't know. I was actually trying to get a job at their sister shipyard up in Maine at Bath Ironworks and they're owned by General Dynamics. So I was in the system for, for the job application and they said, Hey, uh, newly graduated, Mr. Choate, do you want to come to Groton, Connecticut and, and do compressed air systems? And I said, uh, what's a compressed air system? And sure, let's do it. <laughs> so so then, yeah, that, that's how that game started. And it was a really uh, a really cool area of the engineering world and the defense world to get plugged into. Um, huge amount of history. Talk about an endless supply of stories from sailors and, and folks in the shipyard. Uh, so for me, that was awesome. Uh, a really cool uh, aspect of the job. Um, and there we were working on the Virginia class submarine, which was the, the latest and greatest attack. That was um, just kind of the first few boats of the class coming out there and we were already working redesign. So that was, that was some neat work, but the more interesting stuff that we were working on after a couple of years was at the time called the Ohio replacement class. Now it's the Columbia class and that's the, the big missile boats. And so I got to do a lot of work there, went to 
a couple of the the shipyards where they they service them out in Georgia and uh, Washington and got to walk down the missile silo and just be really humbled that the <laughs> capacity that these these ships have and and what mankind is capable of doing um, and the yeah so it was it was very eye opening yeah uh, getting involved in that that project and really cool now to to see that they're laying the keel and and starting work on that that new class uh, is uh, that the one a bunch of people are ticked off that we're uh, connecting with Australia on? Is that the one you're working on? Hmm, yeah, yeah. Virginia. So, <laughs> so the Virginia class is is what this uh, this new agreement is supposedly doing. And personally speaking, because I don't work there anymore, and I'm not. Yeah, I can say I think it's a terrible idea. So <laughs> <laughs> that's Andrew Choate's opinion. So I, you know, it's the funny. Uh, you, You've listened some, so you know we're a pretty topical podcast. So it's funny to me to be sitting here on this particular day in this particular news cycle uh, and not be talking news of the day. It's really, really tough for me to fight that urge uh, tonight. There, you know, there's some big, uh, you know, political news today as we record it. But, uh, but you can't it, it, talk about the space of speed. Like just the news cycle so fast now, like. It's it's in my head the buzz about all the submarines, but like the, it's crisis after crisis these days. I I never even dug into it. I don't even know what everybody's mad about. I think Australia had a deal with somebody else and decided they wanted our subs more. Which let's be honest, why wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and so you know, there there we go. Back to yeah. space. <laughs> no, it's all good, man. I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not the type of guy to try to change your opinion. I like to have those discussions and understand why. So it's all good. I was listening to a great episode of uh, Mike Rowe the other day. He had on a woman who is a, um, uh, I don't know if the right things to say is a reporter or correspondent, but for NPR, it was really interesting because it was all about the art of conversation, and they got into. Um, how incredibly small the percentage chance is of ever changing anyone's mind about anything in a conversation, which when you know what a Sisyphean task it is, it really redirects your, your efforts. Right. And it's anyways, anyway. Okay. So there's, there's a non-space rabbit trail. Love <laughs> um, so it, it's funny that you were kind of at, you got your start in this opposite end of challenges in challenging human habitat right where it's you know it's how do we keep the outside pressure in how do i keep the can from crumpling and collapsing so it's like now you're working on how do we keep the can expanded and keep our atmosphere instead of keeping the exterior atmosphere exterior now it's about keeping the interior atmosphere interior yeah and the biggest change in doing that is instead of using high strength steel, you're using a lot of fancy titanium and aluminum alloys. So that's that's probably the biggest change. A lot of the, the human part is very similar, um, except for some very obvious things. But yeah, it, it's a it's an interesting contrast. And I, ironically enough, I remember distinctly when I was doing a they had a big safety week uh, for electric boat uh, where I worked. And they had a guy from NASA come in and talk about the Challenger disaster, right? And how there's so many similarities with these big, complex, human-in-the-loop systems. When stuff fails, it fails brilliantly and, and terribly. And and how there's a lot of uh, crossover when the Challenger blew up with folks that did, uh, you know, submarine uh, casualty scenarios. Like, how, how, do they, how do they learn from both of these so that 
we can move forward and, and, and build things better and have better systems in place and better sensors and monitoring and, and just conditions to, to do the job to keep that precious cargo, which is cliche, but it's so true, um, keep them alive. Because if yeah. they die, it doesn't matter if it was the coolest engineering thing in the world, which the shuttle you know, was at the time. Um, it failed and it killed a bunch of people. Yeah, and and it that, that's not acceptable. Uh, so it do, doesn't matter what it is when yeah. when you put and that's that's really my passion is when you put a human in the loop, it changes everything. Yeah, it, it really does. Well, and it's I I feel like <clears throat> as Americans, we've been particularly with our space program, we've been a bit spoiled uh, in that um, our space program's been so wildly successful Mm -hmm. at times when arguably it should not have been Um, like what the Apollo program achieved um, with the computer power available to them with the the level of science and engineering available to them. It's still just an absolute Marvel and that our, you know, our count of lost astronauts, after all this time is as low as it is, is almost unreasonable. Mm-hmm. I, it, and so going forward, you know, thinking about the fact that what we've done in space so far, and I, I mean, the statement is, is obvious on its surface, but what we've done so far is the easiest stuff we're ever going to do in space travel. Everything else gets harder and I, I feel like, and we'll get into this with kind of what you're working on now and what the roadmap is for that, um, you know, and so you can you can confirm or correct me, but I, I think it's exponentially harder. And so it's to, um, I, I think our expectation and our, and our goal, um, particularly for people like yourself, should be to maintain that record. But it's also, almost, it almost feels like an unfair standard. Yes. Yeah, it... It's routine. I mean, we were just talking before beforehand, like SpaceX is launching something every four to five days, whether it's their own payloads or others. You know, we're launching crew to ISS at a pretty high rate, um, relatively speaking, and it's normal, right? We've we've normalized travel to low Earth orbit, and that is a beautiful thing. On the other hand, the expectation is that the level of success continues for any other mission that NASA or SpaceX or any other company that is going farther, that expectation is there. And, and if you if you deviate from that, if you fail, it doesn't matter if it's a small failure or a, a catastrophic failure. It, it's like it, it could it could stop everything flat, like we're done yeah. doing that ever again. Right. And and that is the, the major challenge. I mean, I, I hate all the cliche stuff that you see out there, but space is hard. And I don't believe I just said it in a public forum, but it's so true. But not because not because of the way it's usually phrased, but it's the every detail that we're looking at, even what I'm doing now in a it's called pre-formulation, so kind of sandbox engineering. Everything we do now is scrutinized to the nth degree because we know that five, ten years from now, when this gets, you know, you're, we're cutting chips, so to speak, we're going to be putting people in here to be going places that we've never done and, and gone for this amount of time. We've never gone for this, this purpose, right, with all the awareness that we have now. 
Um, it's, it's not the Apollo program. Artemis is a completely different mindset, a completely different context, right? We're not just racing to go to the moon and come back. We're racing to like exploit, is not the right word, (laughs) but, but we know there's some goodness, right? In that, in that South pole. And we want to find that out, do some like serious science, right? It's, it's 2023 for goodness sake. The expectation is so much higher on what we do when we get there. And every piece of that step and, and process that and every step of that process that we need to take is scrutinized by everybody, right? Yeah. And and it's a it's a huge amount of pressure on the folks that are doing that work. It's a it's a huge amount of attention to detail that we we have to have as an agency, as I think as an industry to to make sure that we're not just catching the next headline, but really digging down deep to figure out and how we solve these problems, but also speak out when things aren't going correctly um, and, and being transparent because we know if we're not transparent, bad things happen. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, it's funny, not as, as podcast prep, just, just because I guess I, I've been over the last, I don't know, week or two, I've been uh, rewatching Netflix's um, challenger, kind of docu-series yeah um and uh it, it's just it's a little unfair to sit back and watch i, I, I mean it isn't it isn't it's you, you can sit and watch that stuff now and be like how could they how could they not have listened how could they not have seen it but it's you know we do we do that with with distant history all the time and it's really popular now where uh you know we want to judge history on our current knowledge set our current uh, you know, set of be- beliefs where we're at culturally. And it's, it's really not a fair thing, but it's, you know, one thing that really stood out to me in that is one of the, the astronauts that was being interviewed on it, talking about how they would stress when, when they would go and meet with engineers like yourself, when they would go to manufacturing facilities, their point was always to keep that human face on the endeavor to be like that, that thing you're designing, that thing you're welding, like I'm writing that thing. I'm, I'm counting on it and keeping that, that human face on it. And it does, you know, we do get lulled into, you know, like SpaceX is not enough that they're launching every four days. And it's, it's such a funny thing about humanity. Like the space program really needs the populace to be engaged and be intrigued. And it's so hard to hold our attention. Mm-hmm. And so SpaceX, it's not just they're, they're launching Falcon 9s every four days. They're landing Falcon 9s every four days. They land them on tiny little unmanned ships in the middle of the ocean. And it's so, no, nobody even, I step out of my office at work in my mild-mannered daytime job. And I'll step out and actually watch every time. I, I've got the stream up, but I step out. And I watch because I can. And people pass by. Most people don't even, don't even stop to look to see what I'm looking at. They're landing orbital class rockets on bobbing ships in the middle of the ocean. And it was laughable and impossible five years ago, six years ago. And it doesn't even turn ahead now. Great. It's, it's so hard. And so you even look at what Apollo was doing and how impressive that was. And people got bored. Yeah. After like 12, they'd lose their airtime. They'd be broadcasting live on their way to the moon and cut their, cut their airtime short, you know, which is a contentious scene like in the movie Apollo 13. 
because the wife is so worked up because nobody cared when everything was going fine and everybody was dialed in, you know, when they were on death's door, that mission's still insane, insane to me. In a way though, every mission's a bit insane, right? Because that expectation is okay. Astronauts, A, B, C, and D are going to orbit. We expect them to come home. Yeah. Right. The expectation is that they come home and you're right. We, we get, and I think that's kind of the danger. And it's like that, that document series was actually, I think, pretty interesting from the, from the inside perspective as well, because I work with a lot of folks that, that worked shuttle and, and really speak fondly of it. And it, it, I think it was, it's a good warning on, on how to be careful. Um, and, and that erosion effect within different silos, which is another rabbit hole, having, having those silos and the erosion and accountability and all of these, you know, management one-on-one issues show themselves yeah. in, in this business and what we do. It's, it's not that we're going to lose $10 million and our stock's going to go down a little bit. It's people are going to die, um, <laughs> plain, plain and simple. Um, and maybe I'm going to harp on that. I'll try not to harp on it too much, but that, that's, what's always on my mind is this industry that, that I'm in the space, you know, space exploration is unforgiving. Uh, humans are not meant to live in space. Um, I know a lot of people want to live in space (laughs) and that's awesome. We'll get there someday, but our bodies just aren't designed to live in space. Everyone knows that. And so we, because of that, we're responsible for keeping ourselves alive in every single aspect in which it means to be alive, right? The air we breathe, the the gravity, our body, our bodies are super sensitive to all of this, yeah. right? How how do we how do we even think of these things that we don't know about yet, right? We've spent we've we've sent dozens of people to space, and and maybe a couple more almost to space. Um, but we've not had them there for very long, right? It's been a relatively short amount of time each one has spent. Cumulatively, they've been in space for a long time, so we can understand some of those impacts. But shoot, the the stuff we're playing in this moon-to-Mars Artemis world is months and years versus days and weeks in space. And that is not insignificant to what you said before. It's, It's that exponential challenge that we need to address and um yeah it's keeps it exciting i mean don't i I don't ever want to be doom and gloom this is this is why i love what i do uh but shoot there's (laughs) there's always a laundry list of of things we need to think about and and pile them in 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 a single space vehicle for the crew to be happy and and to not to not die, uh, to be, to be in a good shape when they arrive at their destination, um, to do the tough work that awaits for them there. And, and it's, it's an interesting puzzle to put together. Yeah, for sure. Well, so let's, let's uh, jump ahead from submarines then let's, let's get into some space. So how, how do you end up, uh, working on Orion? Sure. So that was a geographical phenomenon. (laughs) So, um, I actually got married and, uh, moved up to, the Hartford, Connecticut area from Groton. So, um, uh, and, and started a job there. And at the time it was called, uh, UTC aerospace. Now it's Collins aerospace, but everyone really knows it as Hamilton. Um, and they're, they're one of the early innovators of a lot of Apollo era technology, including the, the spacesuit. 
Um, so uh, it was another one of these jobs. It sounded awesome. Um, so I did a lot of what I was doing there as, as a project engineer was running several design teams to uh, create the Eclis hardware for Orion. So Eclis, um, if you're not up on all the NASA acronyms, is the Environmental Control and Life Support Systems. Um, and so part of that system, that's essentially your how to keep your human alive in a spacecraft system. So, so Eclis is that. Um, and that's a an awesome community to get involved with and, and, and Collins uh, is, is part of that. And so I was working on a bunch of relatively simple pieces of hardware for Orion. Um, they We were in right in the midst of Constellation being canceled and, and kind of retooling into the SLS. Um, and nevertheless, Orion as a separate program was still ongoing. So we were we were trying to hurry up and go. And, and support what was then called uh, Expeditionary Mission 1, uh, which is now Artemis 2, uh, and then hardware for uh, the follow-on, which is now Artemis 3, but was EM2. <laughs> um, <laughs> so a little bit of a change in the mission, but uh, the, the team there uh, in Windsor Locks up in, up in Connecticut was was really a great community to to get my feet wet in that space community to start understanding understanding the complexities of putting hardware to orbit um yeah. understanding the crazy amount of uh stress analysis and dynamic loading you got to put on this hardware because of the launch um which was drastically different from the constellation vehicle to to the sls um so it was super busy. Um, it, like I said, I, I love. I left the job actually because my son was born, and I kind of wanted to be a dad uh, to him rather than spend my time on on my uh, laptop. It was a hard, hard, but a very right decision to make yeah. to leave to leave that. Um, but it was very exciting to know that some of the hardware I worked hard on before my son was born seven eight years ago finally made it to space. So when when Artemis launched uh, earlier this year. Uh, I really wanted to go down to Florida to, to see it, um, but with three kids and a pregnant wife, I didn't think that was the, the wisest thing to do. Um, yeah. So, And I actually, this is terrible, but I slept through the launch. Uh-huh. <laughs> I had my alarm set for AM versus PM or vice versa, so I actually missed it live. I, I really beat myself up for that. But. I, I won't judge too harshly because I'll be honest, I probably would have just racked out if not for a five-year-old who never would have forgiven me. <laughs> So he was, of course, sleeping soundly up until it was launch time. I, I came really close to dragging my five-year-old over to the Cape in the middle of the night mm-hmm. uh, because there's nothing, absolutely nothing, like a solid rocket booster to launch at night. It's it's unbelievable. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, the responsible dad got the better of me, and, and we watched from our front yard, which is still, you know, it's not unimpressive. Not quite the same. Doesn't rattle your soul <laughs> like being over on the coast does. Um, I was not happy. I, I do have a bone to pick with Bill Nelson over. Uh, I know he doesn't make the launch windows, but I mean, come on, the buck stops somewhere, and uh, that launch ultimately moving to whatever it was, like two a.m. or two thirty or something uh, Eastern. I can't do UTC. I can't ever do that conversion in my head, so I stick with Eastern times. And, uh, but it, it was cool to see it, it finally get off the ground. Not that I don't have my own qualms with that rock, with the SLS, uh, but, but we'll get to that too. So you've got space flown hardware. 
that's freaking awesome. Yeah. Like things you designed went to space. Yeah. So, yeah. So again, it's that funny thing where it's not just me, right? And this is not just the humble, oh, I'm, it's not me, it's a team. Like, But there's so many people putting hands hands and eyes on everything that goes to, to orbit. Um, yeah. So it was cool that a lot of the projects, all the projects that I worked on were successful enough to be put on the, the launch, yeah, to put on Orion and then go to space. So there, there was, it was super exciting. And to be back in the space industry, to have that happen was, was icing on the cake. I mean, it was just like, cool. I, this, this is some, some cool closure from a job I had a while ago. And it, in a way it was like, cool, let's go forward then. Like yeah. this, this chapter is closed for me officially and let's dig in deep and keep going because this, I'm not satisfied. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's keep going. This unmanned launch and mission was amazing, um, but again, to get back to like the public interest and like that heart part of what we're doing in in exploration is the human. Yeah. So Artemis yeah. two, uh, which is coming here soon, ish, right? Soonish. It's coming NASA soon. NASA soon, exactly. <laughs> um, is super exciting. Yeah. I, I I can't tell you how excited I am for that. This was so the, this was the second flown capsule though, right? Because I mean there there's a, a space flown Orion. I mean yep. I was six feet away from it like two weeks yep. ago. It's, it's yep. sitting in the new gateway display. It used to be randomly, literally just sitting in the end of the old IMAX theater, which was funny to me. They had a couple of pieces of space flown hardware down there. That Orion capsule was down there. There was a Dragon cargo capsule that was a space flown uh, capsule that was down there, and literally just just sitting down at the the end of the IMAX theater there at uh, good old Crazy. Kennedy Space Center Fisher Complex. Yeah, that that's a it's cool. It's got a proper home now. It, it's a cool. I, I was there this summer for for uh, some some work event, and I got a chance to go there after after the meetings were over, and it was cool to see that. That that capsule on display in that gateway that gateway hall exhibit whatever yeah, you want to call it they killed it uh, yeah it, it's awesome to just walk around that room and and see modern space hardware right yeah um, all the post shuttle hardware essentially um, I'm still kind of scratching my head with the name the gateway <laughs> um, right. because there is no gateway. I, yeah. Maybe I missed it, but you know, gate, gateway for for those who aren't aware also is is NASA's uh, lunar orbital station, right? Um, and I was like, cool, this big big building has got to have a lot of you know moon to Mars, you know, yes. gateway station stuff. And I was like, where is it? Which okay, it's, got some, it's got some habitat stuff. It's got, I mean, yes. it's, it's it, kind of in it, your your wheelhouse there. Oh, absolutely. It, it was actually a lot of a lot of stuff, a lot of work that we did. Uh, with a bunch of contractors from from my office here in Marshall, um, as in one of these, um, it's called Next Step, but uh, kind of a design effort to design the habitats for for Gateway and and other other different missions. So it was, it was yeah. awesome. I was taking pictures and sending them to my colleagues here, uh, and and it was it was neat to see just all those mockups on display for for everyone to to see, to feel, to to understand what yeah what type of living environment it might be. So for for the listeners, Gateway is uh, Kennedy Space Center's uh, newest exhibit. Doesn't seem, sound like a big enough word. I mean, it's a whole dedicated building. There's like a simulator ride, actually several simulator rides incorporated into this. But there's 
all this space flown hardware uh, in it. There's a full Falcon 9 booster in there just hanging in the ceiling, uh, which last flew as part of the first Falcon. It was a side booster for the first Falcon Heavy launch. Just so cool, which I got to say, it's impressive to see, but it makes the Raptor engines up up close. They feel kind of small, not going to lie. I'm like, how do, you, how do you guys do it? How do you do it? Um, but uh, then, yeah, there's some habitat displays in there. There's some stuff about web, which, I mean, I could do a whole, I mean, several podcasts just on James Webb, discovering universes that we think shouldn't exist, though it just kind of depends on how you believe we all got here. Um, and uh, just, it's really cool. They they killed it. So some of the par- the park for a long time could feel a little dated. They really fixed some of that with um, the Atlantis exhibit which is unbelievable. They they nailed that. It's the best of the shuttle exhibits. I'm not, I'm, I mean, I know I'm a little biased as a central Florida, but to see it no, as it would have been in flight and the way they do the reveal, it just can't be beat. Yep. hundred percent. If you're, if you're anywhere close to this, the KSC visitor center, you got to go. Yeah. It, it's hot. It's, it's incredible. I can't wait to take my kids. <laughs> so yeah. hopefully we, they nerd out or deal we, with me nerding out. So we love it. And, uh, you know, very important space news. The uh, on-campus Starbucks has been closed for a long time, like since pre-COVID. And they're moving it and updating it and reopening it. So Starbucks, open, important to space news, will be will be open back at the visitor center. So I'm excited about that. Uh, but kind of full circle thing for you, I, you actually got to see that first capsule fly, right? And you tell me you yeah. got to see yeah, that. Yeah, so the, the EFT-1 mission uh, was was in the early part of my time there. Um, which was awesome. You know, everyone in the the space space division of the company went down, and they had this big like lecture hall. They had it on the screen. Um, they scrubbed the first launch, as many things happen. You know, we scrub on the first first window, but the second window they launched, and it was it was awesome just to see this whole group of people um, putting their blood, sweat, and tears into putting the hardware on dock for Lockheed Martin and NASA. Um, it was it was a really cool thing to see. Um, and plus, the the Delta IV Heavy is always an entertaining rocket to see. Yes. I, a bummer to lose that one. That's where, that was where I was going with that full circle. So you watched mm-hmm. that launch with the Delta IV Heavy and then told me you recently got to uh, see the last Delta IV uh, Heavy in, yeah. up close and personal, yeah? Up close. I didn't touch it, but I could have. Yeah, so <laughs> ULA, the United Launch Alliance, is here in the greater Huntsville, Decatur area across the river in Decatur. Decatur. Um, actually drove by it today on a road trip with my kids, uh, pointed it out, but yeah, so they, they had the last Delta four heavy, uh, on the assembly line right next to the Vulcan. Right. Um, so the kind of the, the current go-to and, and their future, which was a really poetic thing. Um, but just awesome to see, uh, yeah. because of the, the because it, it, it's not stacked right in the in the manufacturing so you had the the core and then the two two side boosters laying in this long massive building um just phenomenal piece of work to see um and yeah it really it, when they said it was the last last delta four i was like man end of an error and 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 what a cool cool thing to see just stupid stupid luck i guess but it, it was neat yeah no, that's awesome. It, it's a, you know, with, uh, so for the listeners, uh, United Launch Alliance, 
Um, I mean, all of this information is subject to change, as is most things in the aerospace industry <laughs> right now, because they may or may not be up for sale, uh, depending on uh, reports. But kind of a, a joint venture with uh, Lockheed and Boeing and I think a few others, but kind of the, the workhorse uh, rockets, particularly for uh, national security missions for a long time now. Uh, have been the Delta IV Heavy, um, you know, if not the Delta IV Medium, the the Atlas V, and those are both being phased, being replaced by one rocket, which is their their new Vulcan uh, rocket. Though again, with uh, somewhat bummer news, I saw in the last day or two, they they had a, a comp- uh, you know, I don't know the right way to describe it, but basically, you know, had a failed test in uh, in testing. They were getting real close. We thought we thought they were getting real close. To the, the first launch of the Vulcan, which is another one I'm excited to see. Another Methalox engine. Thanks for delaying the flight to begin with, Jeff Bezos. But um, <laughs> but yeah, they had a failure. So we'll we'll see. They were getting close, but we'll have to see how long that that delays mm-hmm. them here. So something that's cool, listeners, if you're like, I kind of want to keep up with this space exploration stuff more, which is kind of my hope of what you'll come away uh, from this episode of the podcast with um if you if you want a uh, you know, an aerospace company CEO who is hyper intelligent and slightly less controversial, but still a great social media follow. Uh, Tori Bruno, who's the CEO of ULA, is an awesome guy, super accessible, uh, very active on social media. And he's the one who put out like, hey, you know, they were doing testing, which is why they do it. Now, he did say it was a pretty rigorous test, so I don't know how much it's it's going to delay them, but... Uh, Tori actually sent me socks for my birthday. So, Whoa. yeah, for the longest time he was doing a deal where if uh, he caught on social media that it was your birthday, he'd send you ULA swag. So I not so subtly said, hey, Tori, I'm I'm just turned uh, 42. Do you have any space facts that involve the number 42, which is just the grown ups way of asking another grown man? socks. <laughs> So I got like a remove before flight key tag and some ULA socks and uh, that's pretty cool. So heck of a guy, Tori Bruno. So, uh, but yeah, yeah he's, he's ULA is a cool an interesting company because it is like a 50, 50 venture. Um, but another cool YouTube rabbit hole to go down is uh, Destin from smarter every day. Yes. And, and they did an awesome walk through that whole facility because um, Destin, which I didn't know till I moved here, is from from the Huntsville Decatur area as well. And actually, the the guy who inspected my house when I bought it is his neighbor. So super cool, fun fact, right? Yeah. Useless fun That's fact. Small world moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, highly recommend that too if if you haven't seen it, just to, to appreciate the size and uh, just magnitude of of these things. And yeah. So it's it's bittersweet to see that advancement. I'm excited to see Vulcan. I'm excited about the capability. Um, it's entering a real interesting market uh, for what it does. Um, so we'll we'll see how that goes. I don't envy that task. Um, uh, once Starship's operational, it complicates the math for a lot of of other launch companies. Um, it's it's going to be tough if it. If it can do everything they want it to do, uh, fully reusable and at the capacities it can handle, it, the things are going to get tricky for everybody else. Um, but uh, so seeing Vulcan come about is cool. Seeing Atlas V and Delta IV Heavy go away, 
not as cool. Though I hope that they get added to the Rocket Garden along with the Delta II that is there now. I would imagine. It, it, it'd be stupid not to. I mean, yeah. talk about the workhorse. And I think that's that's also the thing we, we have to get over um, is, is clinging to um, like the love of a rocket, right? Rockets are going to like new, new technology needs to happen in order for us to move forward. And as much as I hate to see awesome rockets like that get retired, it's okay. I I think it's a healthy thing. Like they're going to retire the Falcon nine someday, right? The, the ultimate workhorse. Yeah. And that's okay. Uh, Because something different is going to come in its place. And yeah, it's just, how it's got to go. <laughs> I just go. the only thing I want to see out of the Falcon 9 before they retire it cuz I it's it's highly likely that Starship will retire Falcon 9. Uh but I would like for it to beat the Soyuz flight record before it retires. Again, that's just the 80s American kid in me uh that grew up with Russians being the bad guys in all mm-hmm. of my movies. Uh but I would like to see the Falcon 9 outfly the Soyuz before it's retired. That'd be cool. Yeah. Well, and on <laughs> with the pace they're launching now uh, it's, it's highly likely. So, well, you know, let's, let's talk about, uh, you know, not clinging to old rockets with a guy whose hardware, um, is flying on big solid rocket boosters and RS 25 engines. <laughs> Improved. Improved. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> sure. They're, you know, they're flying at what, like 111% of, of design capacity, I think is what mm-hmm. that. So what, you know, listeners, what I'm talking about there, if you haven't caught me opine on this before, now I got up in the middle of the night to watch SLS. I'll get up in the middle of the night to watch the next SLS. Uh, But as is often the case, this is not just going to be an SLS bash session. I have some some reasons to bring this up. But, um, you know, with, with SLS, the idea was this was going to be a relatively... Um, cheap's too strong a word, but the idea was was <laughs> <it> ever used. <laughs> let's, let's repurpose what what we've go. got. We we had, uh, I think, sixteen uh, shuttle main engines sitting around at the at the end of the program. Um, some flown, some unflown. Um, you know, we're we, like we've got solid rock, big solid solid rocket boosters figured out. Like we kind of know how to do that thing. So let's let's take some of this and repurpose it and kind of a speed up this next program, right? And kind of start with, you know, a, a step ahead and, and maybe save some money. Um, it's been a minute since we started uh, this this program, uh, and it hasn't been particularly cheap. Um, and that's just just talking about the rocket. Uh, there's a whole other rabbit trail to go down about the fiasco with the mobile launcher. I, I it, it makes my blood boil. Um, and block one and block one B. So what, what we did, the idea here, SLS isn't as much shuttle as it looks like. Um, the, the, the main tank looks like the center tank from the shuttle. It's a fresh design from the ground up. Um, the stresses it has to endure with, you know, with four RS, so the RS-25s with the big engines on the back of the shuttle itself, um, not not the big white solid rocket booster strapped to the side. So there's four rather than three. They're center mounted rather than, than off-center 
Uh, you know, if you if you watch a shuttle launch up close, when they would first ignite the engines, you can watch the whole stack lean, and it's not until it comes back to vertical uh, that they would blow the bolts and <laughs> and let it go, um, because you can kind of think about how you know, that, that force would have been off center. You probably have smarter engineering type terms for that, but I think people get what I'm saying there. So it, it's different. And that tank is different. It's just, you, you know, the way the insulation on the outside of it oxidizes, it happens to be the same diameter. It happens to end up the same color. It's not the same tank. It's not just stretched, stre stretched out. It is the same. I mean, shuttle flown engines on the bottom of it improved improved but shuttle flown engines and then the solid rocket boosters i mean i'll give you they're five segments instead of four and hey i grew up on home improvement i'm all for more power mm -hmm. um and did where did the solid rocket boosters always have the thrust vectoring that these do now that's a great question I don't I'm remember that sure. being a thing before, but I was I wasn't paying as close attention. But mm. so the fact that there's some 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 gimbling to the nozzle on those is is cool. I, I don't know if that's new. The uh, the upper um, is it an is it an RL10 powering the upper stage? Again, you're gonna get me here. I'm I'm not sure. I I, I, I should I know. Your real house. But <laughs> I'm pretty sure the upper stage uses. A Saturn era rocket engine could be. Um, and despite all of these things, um, and then the ESA, the European Space Agency, kind of built in the interstage mm -hmm. there. That was kind of part of that connects to your uh, your capsule. Um, the teams. I mean, there were other people involved. Sure. Just, um, it's but despite all that, we're way behind schedule. We're massively over budget. Um. Give me, give me the case for this thing. So, so the way I the way I see SLS, right? So, so I have to wear my Marshall Space Flight Center hat here because this is where I work, and and so you see a lot of the story that isn't published in in the news, which doesn't make it any less infuriating or or questionable to the schedule, right? Um, but it's also a good reminder that all of those little pieces. That, that you just went through really well, by the way, of um, of SLS not being shuttle specifically, um, not necessarily being and reusing all this and it should just fit together. But what, what from my perspective, which is relatively limited in the rocket world and the launch vehicle world, is that the integration of all of those pieces that might have been shuttle-based or some cases Apollo-based, right, all of the integration of that that happened was and likely probably a lot more complicated than than anyone thought because on top of that you're adding all these new technologies that didn't exist at the time the original base design existed so we were doing these analyses on the sls launch dynamics which are very different than than shuttle and and how do all these shuttle era or shuttle based designs function with a with an sls I mentioned before uh, when we were doing kind of the the stress and the, the dynamic dynamic load uh, testing for Orion when I was doing Eclipse hardware was bananas, right? I don't remember the numbers, but just the the shock load, especially if there was an abort, right? The abort motors for SLS are are crazy, yeah. um, and and so in in my opinion, right, and what I'm what I see in my day to day is that 
the challenge is not necessarily piece part improvements to the R25s or to the boosters or the capsule or whatever, but integrating all those together to make a functioning vehicle that is incredibly powerful and, and incredibly dangerous if things go wrong um, is not an insignificant thing. And sure, yeah. there's going to be a lot of lessons learned that will eventually be published, I'm sure, I hope, right? That's a healthy thing to do is is be transparent. And I'm, I'm not sure how much of that has has happened and maybe it should. Um, but like any major project, you look at like the, the carrier project, right? The, the Ford class carrier, that that's a similar story in my opinion um, yeah. of it, a fantastic piece of engineering that tried to do a lot of things, but integrating it all into one ship or one, one, yeah, I guess they're both ships was, was super difficult and, and yeah. it's expensive, especially when you get the government involved, right? Everything is expensive. Everything gets political. Um, and that's just a fact of life. And I don't want to get into that cause I just don't know and have the right chops to talk that story. Yeah. Um, but where, where I see it and, and kind of that big picture view, um, is that SLS is not the only launch vehicle in the story when we start looking at moon and Mars missions. And I think that's a, maybe something that gets lost in all of the, uh, SLS bashing, um, is that. SLS is part of that story, right? It's an integral story, part of the story, especially to get crew where it needs to go in a, in a pretty straightforward way. Um, but the Moon to Mars mission can't happen without launch, other launch vehicle providers. You know, the, the New Glens, the Starships, the Vulcans, yeah. all of these major launch vehicles and, and the, the smaller ones too, right? We need all of those like potential vehicles to send a huge amount of stuff to gateway to the lunar surface to to leo and then aggregate and go somewhere right yeah. so for me i think what doesn't get enough attention is all of these vehicles that need to work in in parallel and schedules need to somehow line up so that they're launching a cadence so that if we launch um for instance my my transit mars transit habitat on this company's launch vehicle, the rest of it is, or, you know, the, the tug that takes it to the moon is, is launched on another launch vehicle. They better line up. Cause if you have like a six month delay in your launch, your, your design has a, has a finite window and margin. Yeah. And, and how do we, how do we manage all that? And I think that's the real challenge is, especially from my perspective is not so much, uh, saying SLS is better, you know, Billy Madison, right? SLS is better. Starship is better. <laughs> you know, like that's for me, that's, that's missing the point because yeah. we're going to need everything. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's the real story and SLS will get better. Right. Um, this was just, I think a lot of the nervous tension is gone now that the first, the first ship went out and did fantastic. Right. Yeah. Um, talk about awesome feedback from the public and from the engineering community and, and pretty much all the skeptics were just like, wow, this thing produced exactly the the data that we were hoping, which is great. Um, and yeah, so that, that's my opinion, right? I, I'm kind of an optimist and yeah, it's, it's easy to pick on SLS. <laughs> it really yes. is. Um, but for me, it's like this mission is too big to waste energy on that. And, and that's yeah. not a dig in any, in anyone. And scrutiny is awesome. People should be 
writing letters and, and telling people that they're upset. Um, but for me, I'm, I'm more the holistic thinker um, in this future program is we need all of these people to succeed. Yeah. Right. There, there's folks at NASA that are really hopeful that that SpaceX succeeds. So if there's any misconception that, you know, like there's a tension between NASA and SpaceX, at least from my my personal expect, uh, view, yes, there is tension. But you need tension to innovate. You need tension to push everything forward. And I think that's a healthy thing to have. And it's yeah. not just it, there's no like SpaceX, NASA butting heads together. There's no like, I, and that's where I get kind of frustrated seeing seeing that and 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 how the sausage is is being made on the agency side. And it's really it, it, we really need to be working together and, and having that mentality rather than. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hoping for failure. That's what I hate the most is yeah. hoping for failure is a kind of a, a bad place. I, I only in this space, I only hope for failure with unmanned Russian and Chinese spa- flight hardware. That's all. Oh, yeah. Un- oh, yeah, that's fine. That's yeah. uh, which I like, <laughs> you know, going back to Tim Dodd, Tim Dodd's like team space. I'm sorry, Tim. I can't go with you, buddy. I, I can't cheer on a successful Chinese launch, which hey, even a, a successful unmanned Chinese launch may still rain down giant debris upon any of us at any time. Uh, they, they've they got a, a real tough time figuring out how to uh, responsibly launch their uh, long March twos. Um, yeah, so it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't land in a schoolyard, you mean? Yes. Um, and then, you know, Russia's just, just Russia. It's just all, um, but, um, so I, it's, you know, I want to see SLS succeed and really my, my knocks on SLS are more with any, there it's, it's emblematic of any government procurement program. You know, it's, it's no different than what we saw with the F-22 with what we see still with the F-35 and it's some of it's a political reality, re- regardless of whether it's right or left. Um, there, there's a reason, you know. There's components of that rocket that were touched in all 50 states. Uh, you know, it's because if you want taxpayer dollars, you you know you need to be making jobs for taxpayers. Mm-hmm. You need to have a little bit of state pride involved and we built that and we welded that and, and we whatever. So I get all those things. It just seems like there has to be a, it, it seems so often like, um, su- suppliers, not Jacob space exploration. You guys are fantastic, but, um, say, you know, companies that rhyme with like going, um, can just kind of write themselves a blank check and just like when they don't deliver on on time or on budget, they just get to go, oh, well, man, fifth gen fighters, they're just really hard. Like they get to play the space is hard card. You know, the jet engines, which I'd love to dig into jet engines with you, but jet engines, hey, they're, re- they're really hard. Well, yeah, we all kind of knew that going in, didn't we? Didn't, and so it's like th- there's no cap, that there's no penalty um, I mean, again, the, the, mo- the mobile launcher, you know, the giant thing that they roll the rocket out on for SLS, man, if you get bored one day, listeners, um, ju- just Google it, just, uh, you know, or, or, you know, duck, duck, go it, uh, you know, SLS mobile launcher. It's just been a fiasco and we're going to get very little use out of the one that, that we have. 
because we're only going to launch a few of this configuration of SLS. There's going to be a block one, a block one, one B bigger, more capable. And it's, it's so hard not to get frustrated at those things. At the same time there, it's every bit the necessity. I recognize it's the necessity that the others are because what the private companies aren't going to do or aren't interested in is exploration for exploration's sake with, with the caveat that I think Elon personally might be, um, but I don't know that you know his investors and board of directors are are as uh, interested in exploration just for exploration's sake. And so it's um, you know somebody's got to build the ship to sail over the horizon and, and to go over the next hill. And so you know I, I see that role for it, and I think NASA's perfect for that big picture stuff. I think NASA's perfect for James Webb and whatever comes comes next. Uh, so I'm not, I'm, I'm pro like, I want to see more SLS launches. I just want them to cost me much less money. I want us to have learned even more lessons from the shuttle program, which was going to be, you know, cheap and frequent flights that absolutely never materialized. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think there's a lot of folks, myself included, that would love to see that happen too. And I think the, the one bright, bright point, um, is is the contracting mechanisms, which is really boring lawyer stuff, right? But but the contract mechanisms are changing, and I think be in in those mechanisms, I mean, we see it with the commercial crew programs, a great example, right? We're essentially buying a service um, for the for the NASA astronauts to to ride to the space station, right? And that's a novel concept, a novel contracting mechanism. So as maybe dry as it could be, uh, can be to some folks, that's a really important mechanism to change the way NASA does business, um, to, to incorporate a lot of what the, say the, the legacy, uh, com- you know, contractors are doing, um, but also help to incorporate what some of these new startups are doing, right. And, and have it more of a, um, I don't know if fair playing fields, the right way to put it, but certainly have, uh, a, a different way to buy what we're looking for from, yeah. from industry uh, to make sure that we, we get the, the end result that we're looking for. Because it, NASA is, by definition, like you said, different than any private company that's putting things in space. Yeah. It, well, and it's, it, it's a mindset that I've, I've had to adapt to personally yeah. coming from private industry. I guess technically I'm still private, right? Because I'm not a, on the government side officially, but um it's just a, it's a different mentality. We're, we're a government agency and it's, it's, it's a hard, a hard thing to understand fully. It's a big machine. It's big government and it's, it's, it's tricky, right? Uh, I'm trying to find the right word, but essentially it, it, it's got to change to make it still relevant and to keep people interested and trusting of their hard earned tax dollars to pay for all this. Right. Um, to, to get over that age old question of why are we putting money towards the moon and Mars when we can't feed people here on earth? It's, it's one of those age old questions that NASA I think has always had to, had to answer. So it's, yeah. Yeah, it's tricky. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think the, the market's going to force some improvements in that there just hasn't been traditionally enough competition in the space. It was Lockheed, it was Boeing, you know, it was, you know, whatever version of Rocketdyne and ATK and, and those things, but there, you know, so it's, Oh, it, it, you, if you don't like everything was equivalent 
oh, Boeing's not going to get it done in time. We'll go to Lockheed. It's same, same, you know, it's okay. But now where it's like, and um, the, the crude program is really indicative of this to look at how many flights Crew Dragon has had now while Starliner is still sorting out its issues where by, and I'm not knocking Boeing, but if you, from the outside looking in, if you had before any hardware had flown, if you had said, hey, here's SpaceX, here's what they've done, here's their history, here's how long they've been at this, here's Boeing, here's what they've done, you know, who do you, who's going to get this done quicker and better? Who wouldn't have put money on Boeing? And so it's just been kind of a sea change in the landscape, and it's not. It's easy to focus on SpaceX because they're big and they're flashy and they launch a lot of rockets, um, you know. But it, you know, New Glenn's, ta- you know, <laughs> Blue Origin's taking their, we'll say, more measured approach uh, to things. Uh, but Rocket Lab, I mean, it's just things are changing and changing quickly. Do do you get a little bit of of engineer uh, envy when you're when you're working that more traditional? Um, NASA design test, design test, where you're, you've tried to anticipate every little thing before testing and then certainly before actually flying hardware. Is there a part of you that sits and watch a stream of, you know, like a SpaceX uh, blowing up starships almost weekly going, oh man, that looks fun though. Mm-hmm. Like go totally. fast, break things, go again. Totally. Yeah. I mean, what, what engineer doesn't like to test and break things? I think that's probably like day two. Right. (laughs) Um, but I think on the other side, again, the, the industry is changing quickly, um, and how, how the agency is, is working with those companies to facilitate, facilitate that type of testing. I mean, even, even here at Marshall, uh, there's been a lot of joint, uh, partnerships between private companies um, and and Marshall's Space Flight Center's facilities, right? We have a huge amount of facility capability here that companies don't want to spend millions of dollars on, right? Um, they may not have their own rocket testing center in the middle of the Texas desert or whatever, um, but companies can partner with NASA and use their expertise, their testing uh, folks and, and facilities to test their engines. And, um, it, it's hard, hard not to see the, the cool factor in that. Um, plus it's literally in like my backyard and I can hear sometimes when they're, they're testing stuff. That's one when of the, okay. when, so it, my, when it's not the army blowing stuff up, it's, it's, you know, <laughs> testing rockets. But, my first, but, rabbit, my first rabbit trail that I passed on earlier when you said you were at Marshall is that I saw blue origin posting this week about a successful test of their BE seven engine at Marshall. So mm-hmm. I'm like, how often can you like hear, see, feel that testing as it's going on while you're out there? Yeah, ironically, the the engine testing is not what I see and hear, hear and feel uh, more more than what the uh, the folks on the army side are are blowing up. There's a lot a lot of explosions. Uh, so, um, but when when stuff does explode, right? And, and I know it's NASA related. It's pretty cool, um, which, which is a good segue because we just, my office, what we do in the habitation office, we just blew some stuff up and we've been working um, with a couple uh, of contractors to, to do that, to test their, uh, to test their technology. To, it's called soft goods. It's like the, your inflatable versus a metallic uh, spacecraft. So yeah. we're, we're going through the certification wickets and there's some really cool stuff on YouTube just to 
um, to, to plug that a little bit on the fact that we're, we're, we're actively testing and testing stuff to failure uh, as part of the work I'm doing for, for space habitats. And that is awesome. Like we, yeah. we blew a building up at midnight, right? <laughs> or, you know, sometime early in the morning and um, the, the threads on Reddit and then the news were pretty amusing. Like, what the heck just happened? You hear that big explosion? Because the army is considerate. They, they blow stuff up during the day. Um, and, and that's normal, right? Yeah. If you live in Huntsville, the, your house shakes, there's big explosions. But this was a midnight, you know, we don't know when it's going to burst, but that's the nature of the test. Um, so that was cool to be part of that chaos and, and uh, blowing some stuff up. You know, when I name episodes, I try and pull out three three things typically that I think will kind of stand out, even if it's not direct quotes from the episode, kind of highlights one of the three this week's definitely going to be blowing up buildings. That, that might be the the tag on the end. But uh, I actually, I saw coverage of that, uh, you know, on in space, Twitter and news, and it didn't even click for me that that might have been you knowing you were coming up here on the podcast. So uh, let's let's keep walking through the career then, because we've kind of talked uh, you working on Orion, which is about getting wherever we're, we're going next. Um, and man, it's hard to move past that, knowing that you're working on other things. But knowing that, I, I mean, part of the I is I, Orion going to be used for. Well, OK, never mind. I'm rearranging in my head on the fly. Let's stick with the moon first. I was about to go to Mars. Let's stick with the moon first. We'll take these things in order. Um, so you, you've kind of moved beyond um, Orion. Well, I, I don't know what you've moved beyond. You're, you're past Orion working more on um, kind of in-transit habitat on... Right. So, so, what I, what I, yeah, so what I do currently is, is not related at all to Orion. So Orion is, is the crew launch vehicle to send to get the crew to space, right? Um, whether it's uh, to, to a LEO destination or to to the moon. And when the crew gets there, as part of the, the moon to Mars story, right, um, is they spend a lot of time at the moon preparing for Mars. And when they're doing that, you have to be in an adequate habitat of some form, right? So whether that's a habitat on the surface of the moon or if it's a, a habitation vehicle or module at Gateway or eventually to Mars, right? There's, there's always an element of habitation wherever the crew goes. Um, and so that's, that's what my, my, the office I work in at, at NASA is responsible for, is all of those different habitation sections of, of these moon-to-Mars mission phases. So it, it, it covers a lot of... A lot of ground. Um, ironically, mine is not on the ground, right? Um, I have a colleague who who is running the surface habitation efforts on the, on the lunar surface. Um, the The project and the element that I'm responsible for and lead is the Mars Transit Vehicle, and that's <clears throat> spending a lot of its life uh, in the in the lunar orbit. In uh, NRHO was the non recta it's late. I don't know if I can pull it off. It's Near so like the linear halo orbit. Yes. Um, right. So this we, is the big, the big oval around the moon. So only part yes. of the orbit is quote unquote close to the surface. And then you swing way out far. Mm -hmm. uh, so super different from what the Apollo orbits were. And this is about remaining in that orbit, right? When you're saying yeah. gate for the listeners, when you're saying gateway, we're talking about permanent, 
station orbiting the moon, basically a way station, re- receiving astronauts from Earth, you know, out one door, sending astronauts to the surface and, and receiving them back out, out the other door of the moon. Right. Exactly. Think of it as a first generation space station, ISS, for um, for the moon. So it's, I, I envision this is, yeah, step one, um, but currently funded for step one. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so so what my, my project does in this whole world is, in this mission rather, is uh, starting its life docked with the Gateway um, space station. So, um, in conjunction with all of the other lunar assets that I'll meet at Gateway. So it's kind of, Gateway is like, it's, it's the, the place to be to transfer crew, um, in any direction. And that, that's the beauty of the Gateway program. Um, happy to talk that more, but really Orion, the way that works, the, the concept of operations, right? The ConOps and system engineering lingo his uh, Orion is launching the crew from Earth on SLS, um, and it goes all the way without refueling uh, to to the lunar orbit, and it, it transfers the crew and docks at Gateway. And depending on which mission it is, uh, the crew will uh, can transfer over to the human launch system, the, the HLS, and go to the surface of the moon, uh, do their mission, and come back. Um, or in later missions, when we're doing a bit more of the Mars preparation, which is, is called an analog, um, we'll be doing some direct training and, and analog missions for Mars. And in, in that analog phase, and, and uh, we're going to be using the Mars transit habitat. And that's a separate element that will dock to Gateway, um, but then we'll undock and take the crew to Mars. So that's, that's the piece of the puzzle that, that I'm responsible for currently is how to design a large habitat to, to send four folks, four crew to the moon and then to Mars um, and, and get them home safely and pack enough for that trip. Um, So that's, it's, it's kind of the, the stepping stone between a, a known tough mission, yeah, which is everything at the moon, um, and then an unknown tough mission, which is to Mars. Right. <clears throat> I don't even know where to begin with questions. One, four just doesn't sound like enough. I don't know what would sound like enough, but four just doesn't sound. I, I need more friends for that trip. Yeah, that's it's a tough it's a tough question, right? Because friends are expensive. <laughs> friends friends don't play well with the rocket equation. Yeah. Um, to get to get everyone up there in the vehicle size, and I think if we had a hundred, it, it wouldn't be enough, right? I, uh, it, it's a hard it's a hard number. I know uh, propulsion's not your your bag, and I I don't want to move on from the moon too quickly, though I, <laughs> which is a turn of phrase. I also feel like we're not moving on from the moon quickly enough, but that's a different part of the the conversation. But um, it's you know I know propulsion isn't your side of things, but is the habitat you're working on would uh, propulsion be, I'm looking for a smart word, but I mean, is it going to be self-propulsive or is it going to be more of a, it, it would, it would be docked with a craft that would provide the propulsion. Yeah. Great, great question. So right now this is the sandbox that is fun to play in and that, that that's what we're working on. 
as uh, the Moon to Mars program, right? We're, we're going through all of these different uh, mission architecture options because it's not just a if, if this, then that, or, yeah. well, I want that, so we got to do this. It, it, it's not a linear problem that we're looking at. It's really this matrix. Yeah. Um, and it's a really interesting problem to solve because it's not just technical. Um, what, what technologies do we have now and can use, but what, which propulsion type gets us there the fastest is a consideration. Um, the cheapest is a, is a, always something folks are interested in. Um, and, and that's an interesting part, but essentially no matter what that propulsion system may end up being, whether it's nuclear or chemical or solar or what have you yeah the the, the transit have is currently envisioned to to be docking uh, to that propulsion system so similar similar to what orion is is you know docking in in air quotes because i know this isn't a video but docking to sls right it, yeah. it's it's not self-sufficient to go to mars on its own right Man, I don't even know where to go. All of my questions are based off television or movies. It's actually, which I feel like all would be much more outlandish were it not for For All Mankind. Yeah. There's zero chance you haven't watched For All Mankind. I completely binged that show. <laughs> uh, listeners, I haven't talked about this for a while. This is an Apple TV show. Uh, it's For All Mankind. The premise is that Russia beat America to the moon which just extended and furthered the space race, which now having watched it, I almost kind of wish had happened, right? Because we'd be talking, you'd be working on totally different things right now. So the idea of watching this show is that because the space race didn't really die out because we maintained interest, we, we went for that permanent presence on the, we pushed all the way through to that permanent presence on the moon to having a base uh, Russia and uh, spoiler alert, it's an old, I mean, the show has been out for years. Um, so, and they, they kind of went with this premise. I, I listened to the, the showrunners interview. They're like, well, what if post a, a, if Apollo hadn't died out like it had, and then what if we gave NASA everything they wanted? What if they got not just shuttle, but sea dragon and just everything. Right. Um, and I'm like, yes, yes, I wish they had, but it's, um, <laughs> You know, kind of the, the way they approach some of the things is the stuff, you know, that they approach fictionally is the stuff you're working on really now. And they, they do a good job, I feel like, of addressing some of the real potential hazards where, um, you know, I always think back to uh, kind of like you don't know what you don't know. And we'll, we'll learn some of those things about Mars. And certainly I think we'll have maybe a, a better understanding of maybe what we're getting ourselves into somewhat environmentally because – of uh, curiosity and uh, and Percy and ingenuity, which I know they were working on their 49th flight. God, I love that little helicopter. Um, but, uh, you know, so, but like just the surprise of uh, how abrasive like the dust was on the moon and, uh, you know, the havoc that that wreaked on basically all systems involved where at least now you guys know what you're getting yourself into. But I wouldn't have as a layman thought about dealing with, um, you know, the solar storms and the radiation even on the moon. And then, uh, you know, at least Mars, we've got some atmosphere to work at where like the moon is just, you know, the solar system's punching bag. Like you just look at the surface, you're like, oh, things like to run into the moon a lot. 
Um, you know, and space is big and the moon's a decent size, not as big as the earth. And so, you know, the odds, you know, they're non-zero odds of dealing with some. So mitigating those things, even in that fairly well-known environment to us at this point, um, you know, and I know some of what I've seen, you know, you sent me over, uh, you know, a live talk you did with uh, the team over at NASA space flight and hit on some of that with, with the lunar habitat. But I, I was su- surprised that we're not kind of almost immediately looking at going with something that we're either doing some, some earthworks and figuring out some way to move a fair amount of material to kind of mound around a habitat or looking at something that's already in a, I guess earthen isn't really the, you know, like <laughs> I can't say earthen, but you know, some kind of, of structure to um, radiation in space really freaks me out. And I I'm assuming it really has, it, it should yeah. freak out too. I, I feel, um, you know, for all of the challenges that we're looking at um, in, in moon to Mars, I, I feel like radiation's gotta be one of the toughest to, to overcome. R- radiation is is a terrible challenge to overcome, not just for the human aspect, right? Which has significant health impacts. Um, even when there's not like a solar flare, right. Or, or any sort of solar particle event going on, just, just that normal dosage of radiation when we're outside the Van Allen belt, um, is, is, is significant, especially again, talking the length of the missions that we're, we're going to need to get to Mars. And we plan to have on the lunar surface, you're, you're talking a really high radiation dosage for the crew. Um, and the, the current mitigation technologies for radiation are very mass heavy, right? So we, we have the we probably have the capability to protect the crew, but similar to a submarine, it involves really thick steel or lots of water to protect the crew from, from that radiation exposure. So we got to kind of find that optimal point of realistic space vehicle design um, to, and, and, and separate ways to, to battle the radiation factor on, yeah. on the, on the human side, kind of the sleeper part of that, that folks don't talk about much is the radiation impact on all of the systems, right? So everything has to be radiation hardened. The computers we're talking on now and using our cell phones, everything that they have in the ISS doesn't need to really have that level of um, radiation resistance um, as everything will need for this deep space exploration. So it, it's a, I don't remember the numbers. I was having a conversation the other day with a, a colleague who's much smarter and an expertise in this area. But if you if you look at the processing power that the James Webb telescope has compared to the iPhone in your pocket or the computer that you're using to look at that information, it's stunning. And and that's an area that we need to put a lot of time and effort in is is making it not just safe for the human. uh, Right. That's an obvious thing to look at. But all of the hardware that's supporting the human right, that we take for granted here on Earth and in low Earth orbit because it's, it's significant. Radiation is, yeah. is always number one on my list of things to be worried about. Um, then, then constructing a habitat on the surface of the moon or Mars um, using regolith, which is the kind of the term uh, to, to construct a habitat from, like using 3D printing or just making a big mound and covering <laughs> something. Yeah. Um, 
that that works, but the amount of infrastructure that you need to do and execute that type of design is not insignificant. So yeah. there our our current exploration has to be seen in phases, just just kind of the way everything works, right? You don't go out and try to do everything all at once. It doesn't work. You fail. Yeah. But you have to be incremental in, in your approach. And we're we have to think about the moon and then Mars from that exploration perspective. Um, you, you don't go out and build a skyscraper your first time. You need to figure out and put some boots on the ground to figure out where where the right spot is to put your house. Yeah. So it, it, it it's maybe an oversimplified uh, comparison, but it, it's a lot like, you know, that manifest destiny, like everyone moves west, right? Well, it, they, they, they started pretty lean and it wasn't for decades later that they started to build towns and outposts and, and cities and blah, 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 and get the railroad connected. And that's, it's a, it, it's hard in our society. We're impatient. I'm impatient. We want to see everything immediately. We want to see these awesome renders of lunar cities, lunar bases, Martian cities, right? Everything that we see, it's so tangible because it looks so real in these renderings. But every time I see that, after I drop my jaw and say this is my my jaw and say this is exciting, shoot, like the amount of of engineering and materials and logistics that need to happen to make that, yeah, um, is is insurmountable at this point with what we know. We need to get there first. That that's yeah. what I'm trying to say is we need to break the ice, um, get to Mars, preferably before anybody else, um, but. Uh, and, and and put our flag on the ground and start building, start understanding Mars um, from a human perspective. The rovers are are invaluable, but having a person there is also 10 times more invaluable in my, my yeah. perception. So I, I think part of the frustration comes in not as much. I, I think this one's a little fairer than our short attention span, right? Like, I feel like the the rush to get back to the moon and to get to Mars isn't as much our like our microwaviness as Americans <laughs> as you know looking at something like uh, you know fictional though it may be they like, man they did a great job of of keeping it believable with um, uh, I've already forgotten the name of the series and we've already talked about it. Uh, for all mankind, for all my uh, like it's just hard not to mourn that time lost, hmm. you know, where it's and so there's that little bit of oh, well, we've already been to the moon, right? But we haven't done this there, like we haven't gone and stayed, and then we haven't gone beyond, so it's it's almost unfair to look like we really can't look at it as I've been there, done that. It's we've we've been there, but we're going to do this um so it is different in that aspect but a, a little bit of me is like oh man we should be you know 50 years beyond you know past where we're at right now absolutely with our experience that that show again highly recommended was equally interesting and entertaining as it was depressing yes <laughs> it, now it, it does we've got a little bit of that going on right now where we are, you know, for better or worse, um, you know, the space race vibes are are back. <laughs> uh, you know, we're we're definitely getting some space race flavor out of uh, out of China these days. Mm -hmm. You know, just in addition to, um, you know, there's, 
you know, at, at the same time that, uh, you know, SpaceX is working in partnership with, you know, with the first few lunar landers, which will be uh, versions of, of Starship and those types of things, they're also working on things like Dear Moon. And I don't know that Elon's going to wait for somebody to tell him that he can start pointing things towards Mars and, uh, and lighting them off. Um, so there's that that little bit of competition there. I don't think that really raises there on the back of your neck. But right now, I'm like, even knowing there's American flags on the moon right now, I'm like, yeah, I don't want China to get back before us. <laughs> like we've already, they can't beat us there. No one can beat us there. And still, I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't want you to. <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally. So yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a it's a real. I mean, even Mr. Nelson, right? Uh, Administrator Nelson, excuse me. <laughs> he he's talking about it yeah right it, it, he it's been kind of in my opinion a little bit hush hush but he's talking about it and i think it's a real a real thing that we're starting to focus on yeah well and it's uh you know i'm not necessarily pro fear-mongering but it is it is real their values aren't the same as ours um the in in, in a myriad of ways that that aren't that aren't great um, and you know, these things do matter how, you know, the first person kind of gets to set the rules a little bit. And I think we've demonstrated, particularly in space, how our, our intention is to, to share that space and for it to benefit mankind, not just America and kind of, you know, the, the first kid to the playground kind of gets to set the rules of the game that's going to be played. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think it does, it does matter in that sense. And I think the way things play out and how resources will be used and allocated, um, I think that's a better situ- situation all the way around. Um, the, the greater role that, that we and, and, and our partners uh, play kind of in determining that. Uh, now, the, the next set of my questions are, are, are going to be informed by a lot of sci-fi, uh, but I think there's some good science behind it just in that, you know, like with um with so many things in space travel right now the iss is the way that it's it's the it's the shape it's the form factor that it is mm-hmm. because of the size of the shuttle cargo bay yep uh, the lunar rover or the lunar lander in apollo was what it was because of of the diameter of that section of the saturn 5 um you know Things like James Webb and the shape of satellites and all kinds of things are determined by fairing size, by what's the cargo capacity and what is that shape of the vehicle that's getting this material where it needs to go. Um, And I think that's, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, that's what drives some of the innovation around the expandable or the inflatable habitats where it's, okay, my container's only this big, um, but once my container's gone, I I can get bigger. Absolutely. Uh, but, but is yeah. there consideration for what you're working on now where gateway factors in, lunar resource factors in, um, you know, private partners factor in where the, the mass to orbit that comes online with Starship and New Glenn alone is orders of magnitude higher than what we've ever been able to do as a, as a species. Um, you know, Starship alone, mass to orbit, it, it's it's a game changer. And so, you know, you you talk about, you, you know, you're working in a sandbox right now. As part of that, you know, when, when you watch sci-fi, the more realistic sci-fi. So I love Star Trek. I love Star Wars. But, you know, when you look at things um, like The Martian, when you look at things like For All Mankind, when you look at, there was the show with, I can't remember, what's her name from Million Dollar Baby? And they were trying to get to Mars. But you see 
um, these very different looking craft because um, you're not constrained by aerodynamics, right? When you're talking about this distance, deep space travel or, or, or distance space travel, um, where, um, you know, you can really think outside side the box and things don't have to be, I like symmetry, but things don't have to be symmetric. <laughs> uh, you're not constrained to one type of propulsion, right? There's a very dramatic scene in For All Mankind involving some real big solar sails. I'll leave that spoiler at that for you. Um, so with what you're, you're looking at with, um, you know, transport and habitat to Mars, is something you're able to consider, um, you know, if not uh, in space fabrication, in space assembly, where it's like, um, I think there's there's some potential for use of water for radiation shielding, right? Of course, in a terrestrial sense, we think about lead as a shield. Lead, though notorious, I mean, it's a euphemism for heavy, um, you know, right? Where getting the mass of getting lead to orbit on any craft limits what else you're taking with it. But it's like, oh, could could there be a starship, several starships that are just transporting lead panels that are going to be, again, fabrication I get would be more difficult, but assembled. I mean, we've gotten pretty good at putting things together in space. It's one, been one of the awesome outcomes from ISS and just learning how, you know, you can't just take a Milwaukee drill up and do that thing. You've got to think through tethers and torques and how it's going to work with the gloves you've got to have on. It's a different, literally a different toolbox. Uh, but it's so considering that part of it where it's not, you're not as constrained uh, by the size of your transport vessel, whatever that is. Yeah, and, and I think the first the first step of that like progression and how we design spacecraft is using these inflatable type of structures, right? Um, it's it's completely different than anything we've launched to date that anyone has has done. It. And and the real the real beauty of it is the amount of space that the crew gets to utilize. Right, um, having a three meter diameter uh, craft like we have on ISS, right? It's it's a nice size. It, it's been working, but anyone that would answer the question to would you want more space? They're going to answer yes. Right? You we want more room for activities. And by by launching a, a soft goods and a soft goods and inflatable kind of synonymous in, in my day to day, but when when you launch something and then expand it on orbit, and you suddenly go from um, in our case, you know, about five meters in these large, you know, Glenn Vulcan uh, vehicles. So you're going from a five meter fairing to suddenly your your spacecraft habitat is eight meters in diameter. Right, that's a huge amount of volume that you didn't have, that you couldn't have before. And so that's that's kind of like the first inflection point of where in-space habitation is going. Um, you see it with some of the the commercial um, commercial ISS replacements that, that's in the news, right? Sierra Space is is probably the most prominent that's advertising in their their life module, which is an inflatable uh, piece of technology. Um, and there's other contractors doing it too, but I mean, it, it's such an attractive thing in the near term for us to be exploring and to prove out, um, because it, it provides such a increased capability inside the vehicle for crew comfort, 
um, for for um, additional payloads and and systems to to actually be adequate for these long missions, um, and it just it looks cool. Yeah. <laughs> like there's a coolness factor too as well, um, because it, it's not your your typical ISS, right? It's it's kind of it's this new it's this next step, and 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 that uh, the show the for all mankind was was a fascinating one because it showed again pseudo spoiler alert three very different approaches and four maybe secretly on how to get to mars um and and those ships were drastically different right you had kind of the i think they tried to 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 um, emulate spacex a little bit um then you had the nasa then the russians and and very different uh solutions to the same problem and yeah. What what we're seeing now as we design and try to figure out all of the different elements for for these upcoming Artemis missions is is surprisingly not like the cookie cutter historical space craft that we've seen before. There's all of the innovation that we're seeing real time with launch vehicles is happening in the back room in in companies research and design offices for uh lunar surface uh elements so the rovers the the uh, the communications like everything that we again take for granted here on earth there are companies working in conjunction with nasa and and others right to to make that possible so when the crew steps off the the landing vehicle onto the lunar surface they have tools at their disposal they have a network in place so that they can operate to what we would consider um an adequate mission level, right? They're they're performing some serious science exploration activities, and and acting like it's 2023 or when they whenever yeah. they get on the moon, you know, 25, 30. Um, and I think that's really important. And it's it's an iterative again, probably broken record, but it's an iteration, right? Yeah. You you break one barrier, then that gets us to the next technology level to say, okay, let's start building um, a habitat on the lunar surface made of of regolith, right? Well, how do we do that? Shoot, we need a bulldozer. Okay, first we need something to move all this, all the lunar regolith around onto a habitat, and that's not insignificant. So yeah. there's companies looking at that too, which is really fascinating, especially in my my sphere of, of creating habitats um, for the different approaches and implementations of um, long term habitats on the on the lunar surface. Is uh, you know the goal is, is to be on Mars, not just around Mars. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, obviously landers are going to be part of, you know, part of the system there. Is that something that would incorporate that makes the trip with the habitat? Is that something we're, yeah. uh, or, or are we working towards a gateway type system there? Are we looking at a rendezvous there? So, so the current, the current concept, right. Sends, sends the, that first crew to Mars um, using the, the transit hab and the propulsion system. And then uh, X number of crew goes down to the surface and and performs their that awesome to be seen mission. Um, then returns to the the transit hub and and the whole vehicle returns uh, to Earth. But in that process, as you mentioned, you know what does the surface mission look like for Mars? Right, this is completely unknown, and uh, it's it's that depends answer, right? How long yeah. are we going to stay there? Do we want to make it a, a 30 day mission, a 60 day mission, 
um, still we're, we're talking 30 and 60 days. That's not insignificant, you know, no. compared to the Apollo days. Um, but that, that changes what we put on the surface of Mars to accommodate the crew. And, and the real interesting thing with Mars, because it does have a bit of that atmosphere, is that landing is uh, a huge challenge. Um, we, we've seen all of the cool uh, JPL rovers landing on Mars, the, the different strategies that they used over the years um, with the sky crane and uh, like the bubble, the, like the, the bubble, as I call it a bubble. I, the sky crane footage, though, from, it's, from it's Percy. My wife and I went out to KSC and watched on the big screens out there for the, for the landing. And I mean, it was straight up sci-fi. It was just unbelievable yeah. watching it drop that rover down to the surface. And then just, you know, uh, Tim Dodd put it best, just yeet itself out of there. Just, yep. all right, so, deuces. Yep. Peace. I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> Have fun. But, but think, but think about this, right? The, the, the amount of stuff, uh, I say that lightly, like the, a rover or a habitat or, a. a you know, some sort of lunar train or Mars train vehicle that we have to put on the surface is much bigger than anything we've landed on Mars before. Yeah. Exponentially larger. Um, there's a there's a great presentation by a colleague of mine um, that I saw last year that that maps out all of the attempts to land stuff on Mars. Right um, of those, how many were successful? but also the size of the successful landings on Mars compared to that of what we'll need for, for the human uh, factor. And there's been some really neat um, testing going on. Uh, HIAD, I think is the acronym that, that they just did uh, recently for a, uh, an inflatable uh, landing vehicle. Um, but that, that's, a, that's a really interesting problem to solve is how do we land on Mars uh, with, yeah. with a huge amount of payload um, and, and a human? And then how do we get them back? Uh, again, Hollywood makes it seem a little bit more straightforward than it than it is from a physics perspective, um, including uh, including that show, uh, that, that last season. <laughs> um, my kids were very confused at that last scene. Again, won't spoil <laughs> it, but anyway. So, so the amount of fuel that you need to get off the surface of Mars, the, the, the gear ratio is, I think, like seven kilograms to each kilogram that you want to get off the surface. So for every person that you want, you put on the surface of the moon, multiply that by seven for fuel that you're going to need to get back to the Mars orbit and get them there safely. So it, it comes down to a game of how much do you want to take to Mars? How much can you take to Mars? Um, and it, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting conversation and architectural problem to solve. Yeah. And, and what the team within the agency um, right now is working on to, to solve. Odds are decent though, that we can generate fuel in situ with in situ resources on Mars. Yeah. I, I think so. Yeah. I, I mean, we're, we're, I think even like the, the Moxie. Um, I was about to bring up the Moxie, the Moxie test That's was really promising. Cool right? experiment. Yeah. Really cool. And, and of course you need to, semi-industrialize that process to, to make it usable for, for fuel um, or, or anything else for that matter. Yeah. But hey, that, that's the first step. And we, we need to trial out on a small scale before we do full scale. And so for listeners, Moxie is uh, this uh, small uh, component, this small experiment that was included and in, in kind of built onto the framework uh, for our, our latest rover that we've been calling Percy on Mars that's just generating oxygen from Martian atmosphere. 
and it's been wildly successful. I mean, for the scale it's working on, it's been not insignificant amounts of oxygen that it was able to generate. Mm-hmm. Really, really cool. Absolutely. So one of the big things that you, that we we've seen repeated in sci-fi, but I think the 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 science is real behind it is, um, and we we see it in for all mankind, this generating gravity with centrifugal force. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I, I think the physics is there. I mean, I I think as far as as the math, the science, the science, it's not that comp. That's not rocket scientists. That's almost you know. You just kind of figure out the rotational speed, and you've kind of got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that something we're we're looking at for any kind of implementation in any kind of near term for like anything you're you're working on now, or is that several stages down the road where we've got any kind of capability for anything like that? So I'm sure it'll happen eventually. It's 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 one of those if you just like you just said if you if you just you only got us there's there's that common that common phraseology that we hear a lot with uh what what's shown um in a book or or in a movie for for deep space um because it's a lot easier to film for sure when there's gravity right um but the complexity that we have to look at uh to make a system rotate and to do it safety safely and reliably reliably um, adds a lot of complexity and math yeah. to the equation. So, so certainly I'd love to, to see that and incorporate that starting in like Leo, right? So to have um, the capability to have, uh, you know, artificial gravity in a, you know, kind of a boutique uh, commercial space venture, like similar to that show, right? I yeah. think that's a perfect application to start and prove out the technology that would then enable you know, to incorporate that on, on an exploration, exploration type of mission. So, so in lieu of that, right. Um, what, what we do is we have a lot of information and data from, from current and past astronauts on th- how they are deconditioned over time, um, with the lack of gravity. And it's a fascinating science that I can't pretend to understand the medical, uh, intricacies, but, um, from everything to like your, your eyeballs, to your feet, uh, to your, you know, digestive system, uh, is completely thrown off base, uh, with, without gravity in, in the, in the story. So there's a lot of countermeasures, um, from, from like a traditional sense, like a, you've everyone's seen like the treadmill on the ISS or, or the bike or the, the weightlifting resistance machine, um, to psychological, uh, balance and reactionary time. Uh, science and and kind of the the physiology behind it. That's what we have to work with currently. Yeah. That that's what's kind of charging ahead for these early exploration missions to back to moon, back to the moon, and then eventually to Mars. Um, but I, I'd love to see, and I'm sure someone's doing some serious R and D on it. Um, but but currently, for my my swim lane, if you will, that's that's not not currently on the table. I I tried to you know, without an advanced math background or engineering background, I kind of tried to logic my way through this because this was something I knew I wanted to ask about in that it it is something to me where I feel like you need something on the scale of what we see in these TV shows and movies for it to make logical sense in that what they're doing in, in these situations are these very, very large circular structures where you're basically walking on the outside 
uh, inside, but on the outside of this ring that, you know, the gravity is pushing you to, to the outside. So if you laid this ring down flat on earth, you'd be walking sideways around the inside of it. So I'm like, for something five meters, eight meters, it doesn't really make sense. Where if you were standing on the outside, your head's in the middle, there's some really weird things going on there, right? Everybody's getting motion sick. It just doesn't make any sense. So, I, you know, I, I get why it doesn't work for that. Where I wondered if it would be advantageous is if you could do it on that scale for periods where you're, you're reintroducing those gravitational forces, you know, to the physiology for all the reasons you just mentioned during like a sleep duration period where it's like, if the astronaut, you know, if the astronauts are Velcroed in their sleeping bags to the outside of the structure, now you're going to introduce rotation just for this six hour period, eight hour period where they're basically laying on the outside of the structure, but they've got those downward forces. Like if they were laying in a bed, if there'd be, if that would be feasible and if there'd be physiological benefit to that, but then of course, everything in the habitat would have to be rigged and thought through in such a way to experience that otherwise stuff starts flying around, right? Everything exactly. wants to get to the outside. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and that's the thing. That's where I, I thought like so, what is so impressive to me about what you and your colleagues do is I, I think about the example that a lot of us have had in school at some point where you're given the task of, writing out step-by-step -step instructions for someone to do something, you know, and normally you've, you'll, you'll hear the illustration of like, how do I make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? And you've got to walk them through every step, but it's like, you've, if you're doing it right, you've got to say, it's not just get a knife and scoop some peanut butter. Okay. Well, I've, I'm holding my knife over here and I'm holding it by the blade and I just scoop the peanut butter with my hand. Cause you didn't tell me not to, you didn't tell me which end of the knife to hold. You didn't tell me to, you said, scoop the peanut butter. Didn't don't. And so, You've got to think through every little step because if you forget one step in the instructions, it's catastrophic. So it's like I'm sitting here thinking, well, why not just do a little bit of gravity while they sleep? Well, because the laptop that was Velcroed to the interior wall is now, you these, know. These are crap. the rabbit holes. These are the rabbit holes, though, we're, we're looking at every day. It's like the what ifs. Well, what if we try to do this? Let's, let's try to tackle it from this angle. And then the, oh, oh, yeah, okay. Well, maybe we can overcome that too, right? Yeah. So it's it's kind of this rabbit hole chain that we're looking at, and we call it trade studies, <laughs> right? That's how we look at them. Um, but, yeah, it, it's it's real. It, it, it's an interesting question, um, and, and we don't have all the answers. I think it's yeah. we're, we're just trying to to make sure the crew is healthy as they can be when they get there. That's, well, and you know, thinking through things from, from the life support side of things where obviously there's certain things we as humans need to survive and all of those things, they've either got to be able to take with them or make at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, you know, I know for things like the rovers, the transit time, you know, there's a particular launch rent window so that we shorten that transit time. And I think that's like six months for things like rovers. Is, is that going to be the same case? For human transit, or, or what's that look like? It, it again depends. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it depends on the, the the propulsion system, and and orbitably orbit uh, blah, 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 blah. orbitably or uh, where we are compared to Mars. Sorry, can't right. can't trip over my tongue there because that that f physics don't lie in this situation, and that that's one of the cool you know paradigm shifts that we have with that Mars mission is we're not earth centric anymore. We're sun, sun centric. And because of that, when we launch 
on a year-to-year basis has a significant impact to how long that mission will be. So there, there's something called a conjunction and a, um, oh shoot, my brain is going dead. But anyway, you have you have the two different scenarios where the Earth and Mars are far away from each other, and there's some pros and cons with starting a mission there. Um, and then you have where Mars and the Earth are relatively close to each other, and there's some advantages to launching then. But what I'm trying to say is because we're no longer chasing the station, right, which we have to do now to send crew to the ISS, we're chasing Mars. And then after that mission, what also folks don't really think about is how long that mission is to come home because we're going to chase Mars, put the crew, the crew on the surface of Mars, do our, our, our mission, and then we got to chase Earth or catch up you know, go back. So it becomes this, this huge, interesting physics equation and, and problem to solve. Um, and sometimes in, in some of the scenarios that we're looking at, that return trip is longer than the initial outward mission. And so the question is, is not always how long will it take to get to Mars, but what does that overall trip look like? Because it, it can range from a year in each direction to uh, a total of three years, right? It, it it just it's crazy, and and when we start looking at that, a couple years, right? Uh, difference is a huge amount of food, and spares, and clothes to bring on that mission, and we somehow have to fit it all uh, when we leave. So that that leaving point in time is a critical piece for the habitation perspective and all of the logistics folks and. Um, that, that support us and tell us how much we need to take on on the journey and, and fit in the vehicle. Because say we leave in 2039, for instance, right? Um, then we'll have to bring, say, 10 tons, just picking a number, 10 tons of food for that mission. Okay, but if we move it to 2043 because launch window missed or, you know, we didn't get the funding, then shoot, maybe we need to bring 15 tons, right? But the the habitat was designed for 10 tons. So how do we, how do we do this? Right. So it's a really, it's an interesting margin. It ends up being a margin question um, to how much we need to carry as we design and and make requirements for this vehicle. So it, it's kind of a brain buster, right? Um, So, so again, scope is really an important thing when we're doing all of this is everyone's working to the same mission criteria Okay, this is what we're designing to. And if the mission ends up being different than what we designed to, then we're at least all starting from that same change point and, and delta, our, our delta design is from the same space. So that, that's what makes the whole thing complicated because yeah. we, we can do all of our best work as NASA, a NASA team of engineers and so forth. But... <laughs> um, Funding, just to bring us back full circle to SLS, right? Funding is king, and and yeah. if you if you don't have the assumed funding that you have, or or other variables that are out of your control, you got to do an iteration, right? You got to do a design change. You got to you got to change and and grow or shrink or whatever, and that that's what makes it complicated. Is is stuff is changing all the time, especially when you put politics in it, or and and also it affects the private industry as well, right? Um, with all of the the launch windows, and you know, e- Elon Musk is is famous for giving unrealistic dates, and I, that's what I love about him. I love his yes. optimism, his his ethic, and his, really his mentality. Um, 
But Starship was supposed to launch two years ago, right? So if we apply that to when when they'll have to go to Mars, you know, Starship has the luxury of being gigantic. But when you start putting all of the the line items in that you'll need for that Mars mission, it it's still a huge vehicle. You'll probably be fine, but but your margin is is less. So yeah, it's it's all these things that that the engineering teams are looking at is how how transferable is what we're doing to a different design mission, um, and just keeping that in mind as we as we go forward. Well, and just the timeframes involved, depending on where we're at in in orbit at any given time. Yeah. Like to just say, uh, oh, turns out we need more. We're going to send a resupply. Six months minimum. Best case scenario transit time is six months. Re- resup- so the way we design is resupply is not an option. So we we need sorry we need to bring everything for that mission when we leave Earth orbit, and and so to also compound on that right so you have the the time delay when you're working to Mars and in that interplanetary mission, but then you also have the the physics part of communication and how that doesn't really work in your favor either. Um, so you have substantial communication delays the farther away you get from Earth. Yeah. Um, which is something we don't deal with with the International Space Station, right? That's relatively real time with very few blackouts. When you start going into the Mars world, that's when you get substantial delays in your communications. Um, I think the the longest round trip delay that you have is roughly 45 minutes when you're out and about in the Mars world. So that, in theory, isn't a big deal, right? Normal normal mission cadence you can you can plan that into your schedule right it gets worse and worse as you get farther along but what if something goes wrong what if what if one of your eclis systems goes down and um you need you need the all the experts in houston in in mission control to be walking you through the maintenance well that that whole mindset that we have for international space station ops is different for these exploration missions the crew is kind of on their own they, they are their own mission control. So what that does is it puts the pressure on the teams to prepackage everything correctly, but also have those manuals. How to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich is no different than how to fix this really complicated, you know, brine processing, right? It, it's the same idea, just a different sandwich. And it's it's super challenging. And, and something we also are thinking about with this Mars mission is the level of autonomy that the crew is going to need is going to be leaps and bounds beyond what they have now. Yeah. And that's, that the, it seems overwhelming, right? And it is, it should be, it's challenging, but we're, we're going through a lot of that now in, in different analog missions. Um, there's a, there's a neat analog uh, that's starting up down at Johnson space center this summer I believe called Chapia. And this is a, a Mars surface habitat, uh, analog mission where a crew is going to be locked in this 3D printed uh, habitat uh, down in Houston for a year. And part of their analog mission is going to be how to operate with significant communication delays. And and what does that do to the crew? Like what's that, you know, how do they, how do they adapt to that as individuals, as a crew, as a whole, excuse me. And um, what, what should we take out of that 
mission, this analog mission, and apply it to the actual system and operational design for the Mars mission, which is a pretty cool thing. Yeah. Um, because it's just just think about simple delays that we have, like watching. You have children, I heard. So, like, if Netflix is is spinning right for yes. 10, 10 seconds, right, because the internet's not working, um, we get anxious and. Even an adult, as adults, we get anxious when things aren't instantaneous. And when you're in trouble and you need that expert on the other end saying, do this, do that, and, and you don't have that, that's that's another burden that this crew needs to bear, which yeah. they already got a lot on their plates. <laughs> that's so. why I'm starting the campaign right now. Mars manned mission one. I'm looking for Commander Johnny Kim. If I'm going, <laughs> if it's me and three people going to Mars with a for a couple of years with a significant communications delay, I'm going to need the Navy SEAL and the medical doctor to be commanding the mission for me. I think, and I think that's a fair request. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think it'd be a fine choice. <laughs> uh, you, we were talking about this uh, off air. You know, just looking at. Uh, as this drops, if you're listening to this on uh, April 3rd, um, depending on what part of the day you're listening to this is, NASA will be announcing today as you're listening on April 3rd, the crew for Artemis 2. So this is the crew that will fly out and orbit the moon. Got a bit of a, was what was it, Apollo 10 situation here where they get to look at it but not put feet on the ground. I can't imagine something being much more frustrating. It'd be hard not to go a little AWOL and just be like, oh, I'm sorry, I hit the landing button. Obviously, <laughs> uh, obviously, Orion can't do that on its own. But man, that'd be frustrating. But uh, my, uh, I'd, I would, I'd be awesome to see Johnny Kim, who uh, listeners know we're big fans of, of Jocko here. Uh, Johnny served on SEAL Team 3 under Jocko. After he was done being a SEAL, he went to Harvard and became a medical doctor. You know, because SEAL's not enough. And then if SEAL and doctor wasn't enough, now he's an astronaut. So Johnny Kim, just the ultimate overachiever. And uh, it'd be cool to see him get Artemis 2. I'd really like to see him get Artemis 3. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm excited to see who who gets the, the first billet. I mean, even, it, you're, you're right. It is, from, from maybe that uh, backseat driver, it stinks that you're going to the moon, but not on the moon. Oh. Um but shoot, I'd still take that any day, twice. Yeah. So, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Sign, sign me up. I mean, yeah. you you look at uh, you know the Dear Moon project. Uh, hey, I actually once I saw the list of everybody going, <laughs> I saw somebody make the comment of like, um, uh, at first I was bummed I didn't get selected, and then I realized I missed out on uh, traveling to the moon with Steve Aoki, and now I'm okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> So crew, like, crew I, dynamics are important. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, realistically what we're talking about with two, three, it, like the isolation of this mission and the duration, um, that's going to be a real special group of four people, um, for, uh, you know, more than one of them to return. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Just, I mean, just think about it. Right. So the, the folks that are going to go to Mars are going to say, Goodbye. Make that phone call on the top of the tower, right down at, at Kennedy, and I'll see you in three years. Crazy. I mean, it, 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 it's crazy. It's crazy to think about. Like you're gonna be you're gonna be out of this world for three years, not out of touch 
but out of this world. And there's a high probability that maybe I don't come back, right? That it's always that risk. And, and what does that look like? And so that, that's when you just start having a, a huge admiration for the, the astronauts and everything they go through. And there's another documentary out there on Chris Cassidy that kind of follows his, um, I don't know what, what platform it was on, another like binge that I had with babies in arms, but <laughs> Chris Cassidy, um, also a Mainer, right? He is a fantastic uh, astronaut, in my opinion, um, kind of like Johnny but version one. <laughs> um, but you know, he, he goes, the documentary was very interesting in terms of tracking all the preparation work that they go through prior to launch and the emotional side of it with your significant others and family. Um, and, and that's even for just routine space travel. So I can yeah. only imagine like when that Mars mission or these longer duration moon missions happen. Um, it, it's, it's, it's really amazing what those folks sign up to do. Yeah. Um, to put it, to put it succinctly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, back on, on the logistics side of things in, in your wheelhouse again, though, I, I assume there's, there's some component of that planning that will involve, um, resources being sent ahead. Like I know you talk about, you've got to take everything with you, but one thing we know we can do is just put inanimate objects on other heavenly bodies. So I would think surely, surely there's gotta be some level of resource that will be sent and landed and waiting there for that first crew when they get there potentially yeah i think it, it turns into a um a shelf life issue for some of the logistics right yeah. so space food is not your fine dining of any <laughs> any imagination um anyone that's had that space that space ice cream quickly goes to the real ice cream quickly um but shelf life on on space rated food is a tricky technology that we need to improve upon um, and there's some really smart, interesting folks working that problem. And also part of this Chapia analog is to look at some of the food. Um, but a lot of the, the non-shelf life critical items are, are totally possible to send as a pre-deployed cargo, whether it meets up with the crew in, in a Mars orbit or it, it lands on the surface and, and can be used. Um, there, there's certainly a lot of different options and capabilities that are, that are out there and, and being traded against each other um, because it, it really is a, a multidimensional problem when we, you send stuff that's not in the human loop, right? The cargo missions um, where we'll send like the, the rovers and any sort of ISRU equipment and fuel, right? Just because we're going to need fuel regardless. Um, what other stuff, personal stuff, um, uh, you know, spares and that type of thing, do we also have space for to, to ship on there too. Um, it, it's an interesting question, right? Because on the flip side, there's also the reality that when say we get to Mars, right. And everything went perfectly because my team is awesome. Um, and, and just, we have the Lord's will, but, uh, we're going to dump stuff. That's perfectly fine for that return trip because we need to meet a certain mass threshold uh, for the propulsion system to get back home. And, uh, that's another like mind, mind bender. Like I'm going to, I'm going to eject perfectly good food. I'm going to eject perfectly good spare parts. Um, but that's part of the mission plan. That's like, yeah. trust the plan because it's been beaten to death by hundreds of, of folks across the agency and beyond. Um, 
but that's going to be a hard button to push, right? Yeah. I'm just, here's, okay, 100 tons of food because I didn't eat it. Of, so with of, a, a, of Apollo, hatch. some poor schmuck got stuck in the command module on the Apollo missions. Like somebody had to just chill in orbit for several days, which again, just talk about the short straw. I mean, better than not going, I suppose. Um, but is this a situation where is the plan to put uh, all the crew on the surface and habitats just parked in orbit unmanned? It's one of the options. Yeah. I think it, it goes down to what are we comfortable doing? Right. One of the reasons why I think Apollo kept a, a crew crew member in the command module was there's a person in the crew module, right? Yeah. Um, there, there's a human in the loop. And no matter how good our technology or chat GPT ends up being in 30 years, <laughs> we're going to trust that human before we trust the computer if something goes wrong. Yeah. Um, so that that's a decision that, that needs to be made, how many folks they want to send to the surface, whether it's N minus one or N, oh. but um, I certainly feel like uh, there should be some crew sitting in the in in orbit just in case um, because you have to think about it right with the communications delay the the crew on the surface is going to have the same challenges that they've had the whole trip to Mars yeah so having someone that might be a mission specialist or um, act in that mission control capacity in orbit might be a really nice thing to have when you're going to a planet for the first time. Um, plus, there's a lot of upkeep that you're going to need to do in the habitat anyway. Um, and that's that's part of the whole story when they're going to Mars. They're not just going to be on YouTube, right? There's going to be a lot of stuff keeping them busy, different yeah. science uh experiments, uh, just there's a whole myriad of things that they're going to be doing. So when crew goes to the surface, that work, just like chores around the house, you still have to do them. So they're going to be super busy picking up the slack for the, the crew that are on the surface. And I'm sure there's going to be a bit of envy and some, some rib jabbing, right? That's natural. Um, but when they bring them a, a moon rock or a Mars trinket, <laughs> right? And say it's legitimate to put in the same atmosphere, which probably isn't, but that's how my mind goes. Yeah. Like, how cool is that, right? Yeah. I mean, but then it, what, do you, just, what do you do? You split the crew, or do you leave some poor schmuck up there for a month solo? Yeah. Gosh. But what once a what's a month alone when you've been in the same craft for a year already? Yeah, you might be you might be happy to be rid of the other three for a month. Yeah. <laughs> just just float around the habitat, just in your birthday just suit, peace, living your peace and quiet. Life. Just yeah. peace and quiet. <laughs> Oh my gosh, it's so tough, man. It what it's so awesome what you're doing. I I, I could I mean, we're long now, and I could still uh, I mean I, hours. You have small children. Uh, I, <laughs> it's it's an hour later here, and man, I could just it's just so crazy to think. I, I mean, every every solution brings up more questions. I mean, it's just daunting. It's unbelievable. I mean I, I take back my criticism of SLS and the whole timeline. I take it all back. <laughs> no, it's a health criticism is healthy. Like that that's what keeps people asking questions, right? Yeah. If you don't have criticism, then you have the that that erosion of of a feedback loop that that we mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, right? So criticism is good, but having seeing the the tree in the woods is important, but seeing the whole picture in the forest is also really important. I think that's that's what we have to do with this new new dimension of space flight and and exploration is 
there's a lot of small small issues that are annoying and, and frustrating, but the big picture is the goal, right? The big picture is seeing the red, white, and blue that's, I guess, reflecting in the background of this webcast, right, um, <laughs> on the surface of Mars. That That's the goal, right? And, and us being the first and, and doing it safely and getting those folks back and having one heck of a party. Yeah, for sure. So. I, now, I do have to... Uh, before we completely sign off, because I ju- the curiosity is just eating at me, you know, especially as, uh, you know, we've had uh, two Russian spacecraft in the news recently with, you know, little holes where they don't belong. Mm-hmm. So as we talk about these expandable or inflatable habitats, um, this extended amount of, of time, uh, you know, traversing space, uh, you know, outside of, uh, you know, some of the protection that we enjoy from our magnetosphere, from, from our atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how do you mitigate micrometeorite damage in that Players. kind of situation? <laughs> Players. So the, the interesting part that that's always the question is, is inflatables, you get the perception of the, like a bounce house, right? Um, the reality is when these, these structures are inflated, they're rock solid. So they're, they're essentially more durable and um, rigid than a metallic structure in some ways. And because it's a composite structure, it's not a single layer, but several layers of Kevlar and Vectran and materials I don't even pretend to pronounce correctly. Similar to composite structure for you know aircraft, like carbon fiber aircraft. You know, 20 years ago, we were going, you're going to make this out of cloth? right? Fiberglass, right? That's great for a boat, but not an aircraft. Well, the same thing with the material composite structure that we're using for these soft good habitats. There's for the micrometeor MMOD protection, there's layers of foam within that uh, soft good structure, which helps to absorb some of the energy from the the micrometeors. Um, But it, there's, the the strength in the soft goods to, to combat that concern is the, the type of material that's being used um, and the many layers and orientation of those layers within. Um, and that that's what gives it the strength. So there's currently a, um, a module on the ISS called BEAM. And that is, uh, I think it stands for Bigelow Expandable A module. <laughs> I don't know what the A stands for, but that's, that's a, that's a kind of a, a pathfinder for using inflatable soft goods on orbit. And unfortunately Bigelow folded um, or is officially folded now. I think Uh, they went through some hard stuff during COVID, but a lot of that technology that they developed and refined was really the, the stepping stone to what a lot of companies and what we're thinking is the future for, for space habitats. And that particular module on the space station is generally used for, you know, storage for, it's like a storage closet, but, um, it's, it's been a proof of concept and a proof of technology that has been really, really great for that, yeah. for that purpose. And so, yeah, it, I mean, every, everything has its weakness, right? Um, you can still put a hole in aluminum, uh, as easy as you can, anything else. Um, but it's also how you repair it. That's also an interesting, uh, feature and part of the certification process is, is how you repair these things and, uh, making it possible. So it's, yeah, it's it's a it's a trade. So like, in, I'm, I'm just envisioning every little patch kit I ever got, with every, <laughs> every pool float I've ever owned. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> just a, a little piece of material and uh, some epoxy. You're good to go. <laughs> You're fine. Uh, it'll, it'll, it'll last. I love it. Well, brother, thank you so much for doing this. This stuff is so interesting. The work you're doing is awesome. Um, it really is an exciting time uh, in space flight and space travel. Um, in it, it's the, it's the ultimate adventure. It's the it's the next big thing for sure. It's the current big thing, and uh, it's I, I I could do. We will have to have you back on uh, for yeah, sure. I'd love to. I, I, I I appreciate I love having talks about it and and yeah. different rabbit holes and perspectives are are always fun. Um, I I love what I do. I love talking about it and and kind of learning from different folks along the way because uh, it's if, if you're not learning then then what's the point? So um, it, it's fun to talk about the future, what it might look like, whether it's in space or wherever. Um, and and this this adventure to Mars that we're hopefully aiming our, our sails to is, is pretty, pretty exciting one to think about, especially um, that it hopefully God willing could happen and will happen in our lifetime. So oh, that's, you know, you know, I started to close and then I realized <laughs> Sorry, I had another a, rabbit hole. <laughs> no, I'm not with you. I, I did have a couple fun, just for fun questions. I, I yeah. wanted to slip in. If you were, uh, if you were a betting man, uh, give me an, an over under, you're over under for boots on the ground on Mars. Where would you put your money? Uh, just a year. You can give me a three-year period. Boots on the ground on Mars. Hmm. I think the the official answer uh, is optimistic, but I think 2050. I think seems seems reasonable. That's about what 25 years. I mean, I'll be so old in 2050. <laughs> but you'll be alive, right? That's true. That's so, true. So the way I look at it is. I want to be alive and I want my children to also see it. Right. So even if I were to die a horrible death, <laughs> um, my, my kids will see it and, and that'll be, that'll be pretty cool yeah. because you think about how far we've come from Apollo and how we haven't really gone much farther um, in those 50 years. The, the likelihood is very high. The 2050 is, is reasonable. If not before I'm hope I'm hoping for before, but I'll cap it at 50. And uh, then the other just for fun one I I wanted to give you, would you rather six months on one of the subs you worked on or six months on your habitat? Which would you rather do? (laughs) Submarine. (laughs) (laughs) The food, purely for the food, right? I don't know if everyone knows as widely, but the the sub force really emphasizes the food and the cuisine. (laughs) And and the kitchen and the cuisine they have is, is... by far the best. That's um, fair. Not to say it, it wouldn't be fun to be in a habitat, space habitat for six months, but I'm a food-driven animal, so definitely submarine. <laughs> solid, solid. See, that's the kind of content you only get here on the there you go. Solid podcast. Well, brother, I, I appreciate it. Let's uh, you know get you down here for a launch. Come hang out. We'll do this in person. We'll we'll watch some giant rocket burn some methane. I don't care whose it is. Starship, Vulcan, New Glenn. Um, you know, SLS, uh, though I would, would end 2024 is when we're looking at the next one. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. So, so maybe one of the other ones <laughs> in the, in the meantime, but, uh, seriously, uh, I appreciate this and, uh, listeners, if this has piqued your interest at all, and hopefully it has do, you know, check out the team over at NASA space flight. They cover every launch you could pull up live cameras right now of, 
you know, Starbase in Texas, of uh, the SpaceX's test facilities. You can pull up live cameras at the Cape, watch Falcon 9 rockets come back in on their barges. They cover anything and everything. You want to learn more about this stuff and really understand it is a, a, at about as good a level as you can without getting into the business with Andrew. I can't recommend Everyday Astronaut enough. Um, uh, check out, you really, this is the next step for me. Um, Kerbal Space Program is an awesome way to really kind of play around with this stuff and understand like these transit times and the orbital mechanics and stuff like that in a, in a really fun way. Uh, Kerbal Space Program is a fun little computer program that they uh, they just updated that you can get and play with. So, uh, you know, listeners, check that stuff out for sure. But just uh, find some, you know, this is what got me back into it is, is my son, you know, when we launched the model rockets and, you know, took him and show him, like, find that childlike wonder again because we're doing amazing things. It's there. Big rockets are back. Um, you know, space is back. Being an astronaut is as cool or cooler than it's ever been. Oh, I don't know. The Apollo fighter pilot type guys were pretty cool. <laughs> but uh, astronaut, there's still the Johnny Kims of the world. The astronauts are still awesome. And uh, it, it's exciting stuff going on. So ho- hopefully uh, you guys are, are feeling this as, as much as we are here. So Andrew, appreciate you, brother. Listeners, appreciate you. Love you. If you haven't already, uh, whatever app you are listening to this on, do us a favor. Click follow, subscribe, whatever to let you do. A thumbs up, five stars. We read all the reviews and all of those things help the algorithms tell people to come and check us out and listen to us. Stop by the website, solid7podcast.com, solid the number seven podcast.com. The new merch is on there. Patches are actually up on there now. I haven't put that out on social media, but if you want a little, little morale patch, those are on there now too. Links to the latest episodes, all kinds of fun stuff on the website. So stop by there. And until next time, we're out. The Solid 7 Podcast is a proud affiliate of GORUCK. GORUCK designs and builds the toughest gear on the planet, tested and proven at thousands of GORUCK events held all over the world and led by current and former Special Forces combat veterans. The GORUCK brand stands for Building Better Americans, the Special Forces way of life, and a life-or-death approach to building the world's toughest gear. Visit Solid7Podcast.com and click on the GORUCK link to learn more about their gear and events And a portion of every purchase and every event registration you make will go to support us here at the Solid 7 Podcast.